Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that normally sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better. But on this week's Isolation Triple Threat Special in the red corner, what happens when you're trapped on a desert island with only a bloody volleyball for company? Well, quicker than you can say, Robinson Crusoe, oh no, don't get on that plane, it happens to Tom Hanks. From the year 2000, it's Robertson Meckes' Castaway. We live or we die by the clock. That's how long we have. Nikolai, tick-tock, 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 tick-tock. 50 seconds! When that clock hits zero, you send this truck. I don't care if Lennon himself comes out of his tomb with a priority package. I absolutely positively have to get to Memphis tonight. We'll do our best. I'll be right back. In the blue corner, the age-old adage, I prefer my own company, is put to the test by Sam Rockwell and Sam Rockwell as they're trapped with robot Kevin Spacey going lunas, loony, lunar, loony. From Duncan Jones, it's his debut moon. Lunar Industries remains the number one provider of clean energy worldwide due to the hard work of people like you. Three years is a long haul, you know. I know you're really lonely up there, but I'm proud of you. Two weeks to go, Sam. Two weeks to go, buddy. I'm going home. Looks like we got a live one. I'm going to go out. Okay, Sam. And in the magenta corner, Matt Damon has a knack for getting himself stranded in space all on his lonesome. But here, an interstellar cast are pulling out all the stops to bring him home. From 2015, it's Ridley Scott's The Martian. I guarantee you that at some point, 
everything's gonna go south on you. Ready? And you're gonna say, this is it. This is how I end. Commander, Mark is dead. We have to go, man. Now you can either accept that, or you can get to work. This will come as quite a shock to my crewmates, and to NASA, and to the entire world. But I'm still alive. So what connects these films, and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's the Clash of the Titles Isolation Triple Threat Special! Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Potters. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And we are doing our very first remote record. So just before we even get into this, any weirdness, like, you know, talking over each other, you know, the normal lack of professionalism that you've come to expect, (laughs) this time we are blaming it on the fact that we can't see each other's faces, which I, for one, am loving. How about you guys? (laughs) It's perfect. Blessing in disguise. Uh, so I picked these movies. Um, shall we do connections? Well, I yes. mean, I think it's fairly obvious, uh, but let's um, let's do the connections because it wouldn't be the show without the connection section. Guys, what is the connection? Um, horrible dentistry, <laughs> but only in two. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit, obviously, there's a bit in Castaway that everyone goes on about, and then some Rockwell's tooth falls out, and it's horrible. Oh, yeah, but Matt Damon's got lovely teeth throughout, apart from the end where they're really yellow. Actually, I think it works for all three. Yeah, good. Well done, me. Uh, Is it slightly Mad Men monologuing? Yes, I I think that's good. It's not the one. Neither of these are the one. Vicky, you got another? I've got one more. Um, Particularly bad beards. Oh, oh, we have a winner. Vicky. The actual connection I've gone for, although I'm sure Chris will deliver the real connection, but the one I've gone for is when left alone on their own for too long, all men grow beards. Are you doing that at the moment, Alex? Because I am. I'm I'm seated and my beard is tickling my thighs. Uh, It's that long already, but that's because I'm full of testosterone. Vicky, what about your beard? Yeah, it's coming along really well. Like I've said many times, if Superdrug continues to be shut, then I will look like Tom Hanks after four years on a desert <laughs> island very, very soon. It, you can't do homemade wax, I found out the last week. So, With, with Moon and Martian, uh, there's a musician that connects them both and there is an actor who connects them both. Do you know the answer to both those questions? David Bowie. David Bowie, correct. And do you know do you know who the uh, so David Bowie obviously he's Duncan Jones's dad and Starman plays in The Martian, but do you know who the actor is? There's an actor in both Moon and The Martian. Uh Benedict Wong. Correct. Yay! Oh god, ding 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 ding. ding. <laughs> but you you barely see Benedict in uh, in in Moon. He's just on a screen yeah. in the background, but um yeah. Isn't he in Sunshine as well? He is in Sunshine. He's the sci-fi yeah. king. Yes. Yeah, he's uh, he's next to Matt Berry as well, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I've, I, I, only because in between watching these movies, I've uh, been uh, binging Toast of London. So oh, um, I love uh, that. I was like, I was like, oh look, there's Toast, Matt Berry, Matt Berry. 
What's the real connection, Alex? Uh, the real connection is, as we're all spending lots of time on our own at the moment, uh, moment I, I thought it'd be nice to watch three examples of this situation taken to the extreme so we can hopefully feel better about things at the moment and go slightly less mad. At least that's what me and my new friend Dunlop think. <laughs> Dunlop's a football I've drawn a crude face on. Uh, he's with me now. Say hello, Dunlop. <laughs> that was funny. He said hello. <laughs> so, yeah, the connection is isolation, which I feel I gave away by calling this podcast the isolation special. But there you go. So we do this chronologically. Um, shall we get into our first movie from 1996? I gave this to Vicky, and that film is Castaway. Victoria takes away. I watched Castaway, which made me sad, not because of the pure dread and anguish of total and absolute loneliness, but because I really want to go on holiday, especially to Fiji. And even if I volunteered to crash face first into the Pacific to get there, I'm not allowed right now. And that is bullshit. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I love you. I love you too. I'll be right back. Fire, engine one. Have you ever been to Fiji? Of course I haven't. Why of course you haven't? It's like... I'm pretty sure it's on one of those round the world tickets that people get when they get out of uni and go on the gap yard. <laughs> really? I thought you yeah, went yeah, grape yeah. picking in the south of France. <laughs> I've, I, every one of the people who've ever gone, I've got one of those special round the world tickets where you just sort of fly and fly and fly and fly and fly and eventually come home. I think that's the definition of round the world. Anyway, he, uh, they, um, they always stop off in Fiji. I'm sure okay. they all stop off in Fiji. So do you guys remember seeing Castaway? Have you got memories of seeing this movie first time out? I've only, I've only seen it once before, um, which is ridiculous, really, because it's very, very rewatchable. But I've only seen it once before last week. Yeah, I watched it. I think I might have seen it at the cinema, but I definitely watched it around the time it came out. And I remember really, really enjoying it. And uh, spoiler, I really, really enjoyed it again this time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was kind of an event movie at the time, I remember, because you had Zemeckis reteaming with Tom Hanks, who was pretty much the biggest star in the world at the time. And there was all the, you know, there was all the story about how long it took them to shoot it. And I remember, I felt like everyone went to see this at the cinema. It was such a big hit and it did feel like going and watching an event unfold before your eyes. Yeah. I remember all the build up to this was the talk about Tom Hanks spends so much of the screen time on his own on an island. I think that was the real hook uh, before I saw it. At least people were going, he's on his own. He's acting on his own because this is the first sort of real isolation movie that I'd seen in my lifetime. Yeah, and the funny thing is, I was doing the maths when I was watching it this time. He spends less than 50% of the movie on that island. Yeah. Yeah, which is a problem. <laughs> when we get into this film, that's a real problem for me because I was like, well, how long is this Christmas dinner <laughs> going to last? <laughs> oh, I'd forgotten about the Christmas dinner bit. And everyone's got such a horrible jumper on, but, but no one seems to realise that their jumpers are horrible. <laughs> 
it's awful. The only redeeming thing about the entire Christmas dinner sequence at the top is I'd never seen or heard of candied yams before I mm. watched this film. And I was like, get me some of those right now. They had marshmallow, toasted marshmallow on the top. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, I've never had it. Have you had a... All right, so you've not been to Fiji. Have you had a candied yam? <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah, I'm such a citizen of the world. <laughs> are they? Are they everything I've just made them out to be? Yeah, they're the sweetest things you've ever eaten in your life. Uh, there you go, see? I need my. I need some candied yam in my life. Mm-hmm. Chris, candied yam man? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So... um Obviously, this movie is, uh, it was a, a huge, a, a huge hit at the time. And um, it got Tom Hanks uh, another uh, Oscar nomination, uh, grossed nearly half a billion dollars worldwide. It had been in development for years, I believe. Uh, Tom Hanks had the idea, along with the screenwriter, um Bill Broyles, and then it was only when uh, Robert Zemeckis came along that they decided to turn Tom Hanks's uh, initial idea into this film. And the initial idea, uh, and I'm quoting Tom Hanks here, was I was reading an article about FedEx, and I realized that 747s filled with packages fly across the Pacific three times a day, and I just thought, what happens if that goes down? Which really is a fairly loose pitch, if you ask me. I don't think he deserves a third of the credit for that. No mention of an island whatsoever. It's Yeah, I think it's weird to see a plane like that and come up with this. Um, but that's why they pay him the big bucks, I guess. <laughs> that flash of inspiration. What would happen if a plane crashed? Amazing. <laughs> Uh, it did uh, turn the screenwriter Bill Broyles into a, a, an A-list writer because he'd done Apollo 13 already and then that coupled with this um, turned him into a, a big cheese in the writing community but like you say Chris uh, this movie um, took a long time to shoot why is that? I know why it is. I've done some research right. this week. It's because right. uh, in between, uh, Robert Zemeckis made What Lies Beneath <laughs> between filming Tom Hanks on the island. He put on 50 pounds. Then he wants him to lose a shit ton of weight. So he thinks, do you know what? I'll make a brilliant film in between because that's how good I am. And then we go back to the island like a year and a half later, maybe a year later, um, and Tom Hanks has lost a shit ton of weight. And then you can have the island scenes. Exactly, and you. you kind of wonder. You kind of wonder whether Tom Hanks uh, wishes he'd had Ridley Scott as a director, because for The Martian, Matt Damon, when he's really skinny at the end, he was like, "I want to lose. Um, I'm going to lose the weight." And Ridley Scott's like, "No, you're not. I'm just going to use someone else." Because Ridley Scott, not an actor's <laughs> director, not an actor's. Director. I appreciate the craft, Matt. Matt, I appreciate the craft in you wanting to lose the weight. It'll take too long. Here's a skinny guy. See ya. Is, I didn't know that. So is that someone else? Because his arm looks really skinny at the end, doesn't it? And is that just a skinny man's arm? I mean, they might have used a little bit of CGI, I guess. But no, it's, yeah, it's a body it's a body double that it's they a skin, it, It's but, a skinny guy and they, they just put a towel on his head. <laughs> <in the mountain. laughs> Which I thought was really funny. I hadn't really spotted it before, but it just made me laugh this time. <laughs> Ridley, are they going to see my face? Matt. I'm putting a towel on your head. I'm not an actor's director. Put the towel on your head. 
so let's t- let's go through the film because um, we open, don't we, uh, in uh, Russia, I believe. We do, yeah. In Russia, we meet Chuck Nolan, Tom Hanks, who, as far as I can tell, his job is to shout at people in Russia on behalf <laughs> of FedEx, <laughs> which I've always, I've always hated the FedEx thing. Um, I think if you remember back to like late noughties, Late noughties, late nineties, early noughties. Product placement, I think, especially to a British audience, maybe just feels a bit uh, and it feels a lot mm. like product placement. Um, and I've read since that FedEx have said, you know, they feel more like a character in the movie, which frankly is worse. <laughs> it's a worse thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I read that actually FedEx, although it is clearly product placement, they didn't pay any money to have themselves put in this movie. They were approached by the filmmakers and they were initially like, you want to crash a FedEx plane? How about, no, there's this other organization, UPS. <laughs> they might be up for it. But then they, yeah. they decided that um, the overall story was kind of positive for FedEx as a brand, so they um, allowed it to be used. But they didn't pay for it. Yeah, but that's the irritating thing because there's, there's lots of – we'll get to the ending and there's lots of ways to read the ending. But the ending can be most basically read as he still delivers his fucking package. So <laughs> – even if even if FedEx takes four years to get there, they will get there, and that's like that's <laughs> ultimate product placement. Like they'll never forget your fucking angel wings package or whatever the shit that is. Although I will say he's not. I don't think he's any uh, employed any longer by FedEx at the end. I think he's probably left his job because he's going on his little road trip. So I think there's something dubious about an ex FedEx employee still holding on to a package and turning up at your house going, yeah, I'm not here in a professional capacity, but I do have a <laughs> package. Can I come in? <laughs> Can I come in? Yeah. P.S. You saved my life somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's the point about Chuck Noland. Uh, he loves his job and he loves Helen Hunt, but not as much as he loves his job. So when he's yeah. called away to Malaysia, I think around Christmas time, he promises to be back for New Year's Eve. In fact, he promises to be right back. He's at the airport being waved away. He does a sort of half marriage proposal, but doesn't quite go through with it. But only because he's in such a rush, <laughs> because he's obsessed with time, um, which I don't know. I You know how I am with stuff like, oh, and we'll get to this a lot in The Martian, but like trying to make a character fit the scenario. So he's obsessed with time and obviously time becomes meaningless when he's on the island. And I do quite like that. But I think it's a bit yeah. hawky to be like, oh, and P.S. he works for FedEx. Like there are other ways of having a person obsessed with time and they don't have to like deliver packages for a living. It's the example we always use, which is, you know, uh, the fly, Jeff Goldblum at the start, he builds a teleporter because he gets travel sick. It's mm. that kind of join the dots but he does say the stupidest line. I mean, it is very hokey where he goes, I'll be right back. I have to believe that that is in there because it's like, it's a nod to all those times where characters say that in other films and then don't come right back as opposed to they've just gone, yeah, that line works because it's like, obviously you're not going to be right back because you just said that line. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But he gets on the plane um, and then we get to a, a really, which I'd forgotten how good this scene is. And obviously thinking about how old this film is now, but the plane crashes, the unthinkable happens and the plane crashes. And it is an amazing, terrifying crash, an amazing crash. It goes on for ages. Um, there are just obstacle after obstacle. He crashes face first into the ocean. Then he gets tangled in his life raft. Then something else. Oh, then he nearly gets sucked into the engine. Like it just doesn't yeah. let up and it's brilliant. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing to say about a director, isn't it? But Robert Zemeckis crashes planes well. Really, really well, yeah. Between this and Flight, uh, mm. I love the plane crash in Flight. Um, it's two movies by him that start with a plane crash. Yeah. It's interesting. The only thing I did think, though, is that he's got Tom Hanks. This tooth is the thing that people remember quite a lot about the film, which we'll get to. And his tooth is really bothering him before he gets on the plane. And even though he smashes into the Pacific, his tooth doesn't fall out. So that's interesting. <laughs> I don't. Is that an actual sort of a registered tooth removal? Dental practice. <laughs> like, have you ever sat in a dentist chair and they go, so we could use local anaesthetic and I could give it a yank. <laughs> or there's a plane parked out yeah. back, FedEx, heading to Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> so then we're on the island. Um, and that's when we get into, and this is why this is an excellent isolation film because we we from then on we do not cut back to civilization, and I think there's no music, so it's to make that sense of complete absolute loneliness. Um, it's it's perfect insofar as it doesn't resort, but well, doesn't use cut back to Helen Hunt to show what life is like, um, that he's, things that he's missing out on. So we're just with him as he tries to survive on an island. Um, and using is you know practical intelligence um, to be able to not die. Basically, the only thing I found distracting, which I wanted to check with you, is I was once told that you can live off coconuts and nothing else um, because they have everything you need nutritionally. Is that true? It's absolutely true, and I say that not actually knowing whether it's true or not. I've just perfected the way of saying things as though I know them, so that right. I get away with people going, "Man, that kid knows stuff." Uh, I've no idea, Chris. Uh, no, it's not true, actually. Is it not? <laughs> uh, no, I don't know either. But I've perfected that as well. <laughs> You're both really good at that. <laughs> but, but but speaking of speaking of of that, how long do you think the pair of you could last on on an island? Not together uh, until. Hang on, just before we get into this great question, Chris, the quiz later on kind of focuses a lot on this idea, so we can have the conversation. But let's not into specifics because no. I've done a quiz. Let's but, save it. Let's um, save it I, to the end. Let's save it to the end. No, I, I mean, just for the record, I'd probably last like forever. So whatever. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Vicky. Right. A week. Um, a week. A week tops. Se- seven hours, I give it. Until I got hungry, and then I would die. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just be. I, mean, I tell you what, I did think is like, can you ferment coconut? juice is it a juice coconut milk whatever until you get some sort of rudimentary moonshine then you can string up a hammock then you've got a mai tai then i'm all right but yeah failing that you just go looking for any luminous colored frogs and licking them what's this what's this (laughs) just hoping for the little little uh little escapism that that frog offers you just take the edge off my situation completely (laughs) that's what i've been doing this week (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I went to, uh, I broke into Kew Gardens Tropical House just for that reason. Where where they get the frogs? It's just plants here. So yes, Tom Hanks adapts pretty quickly um, to his surroundings. So he makes quite a lot of changes and it's really interesting to watch because it's it's interesting to learn. Like I legitimately only know how to start a fire because of Castaway. Like I don't know how to do that in real life. I've never had to try, but if I had to try, I'd be like, how did Tom Hanks and Castaway do it? And then I would go on from there. He um 
Yeah, but that bit, that bit where he's doing the the rubby rub thing, where it's he's pushing it down before he realizes it needs to crack. The moment he cracks it, I'm I'm waiting. I'd forgotten that the splinter goes into his hand and rips his palm open. Mm. That's possibly even more than the tooth bit. That's the big owl moment for me in this, and I I hate teeth being knocked out, as you know. The tooth is horrendous. It's just horrendous. But it's a good moment because um, it's the stuff that people talk about 20, however many years later, 20 years later. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I very mm. much remember uh, watching that sequence in the cinema and the whole audience going a little bit crazy, you know, actually yeah. making noises <laughs> while they're watching yeah. it, which you don't get a lot in the UK. Um, and so, mm, yeah, yeah, they knew. What, I mean, it felt like it's it's one of the great horror scenes in cinema and it's in this sort of family film. I can't. It's, it is. It's, it's. It's a strange moment of um, body horror <laughs> in an otherwise less body horror kind of film, which it has in similarity to The Martian. There's um, a fairly um, interesting bit of body horror in that as well. Yeah. Um, and talking of the um, the bloodied hand from his FedEx packages. So Tom Hanks washes up with quite a lot of FedEx packages, which he opens apart from one that's got angel wings on, which we've set up at the beginning, which is a little bit of an issue for me because what if there was a flare in there or a map or whatever, but fine. Um, yeah. They, and FedEx did a humorous um, Super Bowl commercial all about that. Where, yeah. Um, their parcels arrives at the end and it's full of exactly what you just said when he hands it over to the woman. He's like, well, what was in this thing that I never opened? She's like, oh, satellite phone, GPS, you know, regular stuff. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I can understand why it becomes important as a token to him with more time on the island, but as it is, it's this thing that's sort of a beacon back to civilization. But in that first instant where he's tearing open packages, it doesn't make sense to me that he would set that one aside. But whatever. Um, that's how he gets his ice skates, which he uses for dentistry. That's also how he gets Wilson the volleyball. And then when he bloodies his hand by putting a stick through it, he invents a friend in order to be able to cope with his situation. Wilson, yeah. Uh, so Wilson is... Um, a character that the screenwriter Bill Broyles um, created, and he says he created him by accident where he decided as preparation for writing this, he'd isolate himself on a beach in the Gulf of California, so not proper isolation, to force himself to search for water and food and obtain his own shelter. And during this time, a volleyball washed up on shore, and that was the inspiration for Wilson. Um it's a nice story, but I don't think I'd ever tell it. I'd be like, no, I just came up with that. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> I think I it must have been it. such a difficult pitch because without seeing Tom Hanks do it, someone reading that script would be like, is he talking to a volleyball? Are you sure about this? Like, is there no other way of, can he not have an animal friend? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, where are all the animals as well on this island? Like, there are no predators. When You know, when he first goes into the cave, I was fully expecting like a massive fucking bear to jump out. I'm not saying he should make the bear a friend. I think that could be dicey. But what about a lizard? What about a crab? Whatever. But a volley. I mean, the volleyball thing is brilliant because it's now iconic. But I just, I would love to have been in the room at the time where someone's like, we, we, we can't do a, we cannot have a volleyball as like second billing in this film. <laughs> I remember the review saying that all about sort of this, you know, this amazing character is this volleyball that doesn't speak, but you'll, and, and just thinking bollocks. 
absolute bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> and then you watch it and you're like, oh, I get it. I get it. And yeah. I don't know if that's through, you know, clever writing or the fact you've got one of the best actors of all time really selling it, but it, it, it works. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if the other option is, what was yours, Vicky? A talking bear friend? I'm going yeah. with the volleyball. Yeah. I thought <laughs> a Vicky said a, friend, yeah. I thought Vicky said a predator. This would have been an awesome predator sequel. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! But then we've so we've got he's got his like a, a sort of lifestyle, and then we cut and we cut to four years in the future, which I don't like um but i'll mention that later because we sort of lose all that time i get it and i'm like it's a really cool introduction to four years on tom hanks i always watch him throw that spear at that fish and i'm Mm. like no way is he making that shot he's too far away he can't even see the fish from there no matter how plentiful the oceans are and also the angle that it's got to enter the water i don't know i'd need to see a youtube video of an actual man throwing a wooden spear into the sea and hitting a fish yeah i didn't i didn't know you knew so much about spear fishing alex this is this is interesting I don't. Well, I do, but only because of like the people who get attacked by sharks are often spear fishermen because they've got a belt full of bloodied fish. In fact, that leads me on to the fact that the one thing that I spent the whole movie doing, even though I know there isn't a shark in it, every time he's in the sea, especially when he's bleeding, I'm like, sharks come in, shark yeah, attack, there's going to be a shark attack. And there isn't, and I know there isn't, but that's how scared of sharks I am, that I still think this movie may have been re-edited in my absence from watching it to contain a shark. <laughs> An interesting mix of fear and ego. (laughs) That's me in a nutshell. That's so true. That is so true. So we've got Tom Hanks four years later, and he's looking very well, uh, a little bit shaggy-haired. But like you say, he's he's perfectly adapted to his surroundings. He can spearfish from fucking miles away. Full-on conversations with Wilson. And quite quickly, um, a portaloo washes up. And it's interesting that he hasn't lost the drive or the motivation to try and get home. It's not like he's given up. He's not thought, this is just where I'm going to live. He hasn't lost the sense of like um, using whatever material comes his way to improve his situation. So he instantly sees that he can uh, use the portaloo door, whatever it is, to improve a life raft. Um, there is, for me, it was a bit of a surprise that he was going to use it as a sail. I think that's meant to come as a surprise when, you know, when he sort of flips it open on the when he's on the sea um but a really brilliant surprise and so off he goes um my favorite line of the whole film is when he's built the raft and he tells wilson a ball you don't have to worry about anything i think it's so sweet that he's like wilson don't worry (laughs) like i've got this and wilson is a ball like it's just it's really beautiful um yeah and then he's off on the seven seas he manages to get through the break so he's he's off he doesn't know how long he's gonna have to drift for um but he does finally lose Wilson. And then you get the very, very famous scene of Tom Hanks in the sea screaming Wilson at a ball that's <laughs> floating yeah. away. And he I'm finally I'm sorry, cries. Wilson. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's heartbreaking, that scene. Balled my eyes out. I knew it was coming. It was almost why I didn't want to watch it because I was like, oh, do I want to cry today? Fine. I'll watch Castaway today. <laughs> I want because... to cry today. Is it my allotted time to cry today? No. <laughs> But you know those scenes that without fail, no matter how... It's like Bambi's mum. It's one of those scenes that no matter how many times you've seen them, it will tick all the emotional boxes, fire off exactly the neurons that will make you go, <laughs> oh, God, he's so, he loves so... 
bloody volleyball so much. It, it also gives me real anxiety because have you ever swum after a volleyball in the sea to try and get it back? And it just keeps going and going and you're looking at shore and you're going further and further and you think, can I make it? And it's it, it's terrifying. It makes me think of doing that a couple of times. When have uh, you done that? It makes me think of you playing volleyball on a beach, Chris, which is an <laughs> image I'm going to take with me. <laughs> <laughs> a very hairy baby playing volleyball. Look at this beach here. There's a hairy baby playing volleyball. No, because he got his back waxed, didn't he? Do you remember? Were you very oh, smooth? Yeah. No, this is yeah. bringing back a memory of when I was in Tenerife and I was throwing a volleyball back and forth with a girl and I wasn't paying attention enough and the ball hit me in the face and my tooth fell out. <laughs> this is true, Ooh. my tooth fell out because I knocked my teeth out on my 18th birthday, as I've told you, and so I had temporary teeth in that, that weren't properly attached. And then I was so gutted because I, I was flirting with this girl, and then my I hadn't, even, I hadn't even noticed my tooth had come out. I'm still talking to her, and she's like, she's like, Chris, I think your tooth just came out. So I swam back to shore, nearly crying, and she went and got her friends, and they're all looking for my tooth in the sea, and I'm telling them to stop because they're probably not going to find my tooth in the bloody sea. And that was it. That was it. It was all over with that girl. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. It's one of the worst things ever happened to me, and you're laughing. Oh wow! The only thing that could have could have made it better is if they'd like picked up what they thought was your tooth, but it was just a misshapen pebble, and put it in your mouth <laughs> in a hole, and you've gone thanks, and had a pebble where your tooth was because you didn't want to say it's not my tooth. Oh, don't! I just lay on the beach oh. with a towel over my head, trying not to cry. <laughs> oh wow! Someone write that scene. Write that scene. That is that's straight out of American Pie. It is. It's fantastic <laughs> oh, oh sorry um, anyway back to Wilson Wilson's anyway, gone Wilson's gone Tom Hanks is rescued um, he is picked up by a cargo ship and th- and that's it uh, he's back um, we see him on the plane on the way back and his friend is it his friend it doesn't matter is talking to him to say we've been in touch with Helen Hunt Kelly she's called we've been in touch with Kelly um it's, you know, get ready kind of thing. Um, he's really nervous. He's been thinking about her for four years. He's had a, a locket that she gave to him as a present with a picture of her face in it. And it's really kept him going through this time. We then cut to Helen Hunt's house. Um, she's married. Well, I presume she's married. She's got a kid. The phone rings and she gets this huge piece of news that the person that she was almost married to and had been together for like five years he's not dead he's alive and this annoys the fuck out of me but her reaction is to faint which i fucking hate because because helen hunt is a very very good actor so give her the moment to do some fucking acting rather than have her go you are bang like no (laughs) it's just ridiculous is is there any acting that can like deliver that same sort of like it's literally the only respect like there's no acting to be done because it's so overpowering bang she's just out it's quite powerful like i mean i've never i've never done it because nothing has ever shocked me but uh like for her i mean this is big news and like no 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 in films when a man gets some big news does he ever faint no. So why do women faint? Women faint. Men don't faint. Right, is that all right? Fine. If that's what it is, um, exactly. I don't think that's true. Biologically speaking, <laughs> fine. 
It's interesting to know that we can keep up this even though we can't see each other. <laughs> <laughs> We're still fighting, fighting a battle. Um, anyway, I think it, I think it robs um, an excellent Oscar-winning actor of the chance to do some acting, and I think uh, that is cheap. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, uh, no, I, I I see what you mean. I'm I'm sort of now visualising her sitting down with her hand over her mouth, sort of like gasping for breath. I'm not telling her, Helen Hunt how she should have played that scene, but had she been given the opportunity, yeah, I guess it would have been it would have been her Wilson moment. Yeah, and why not? Um, they're mm. quite evenly matched when they're in scenes together, and they are evenly matched in their careers, you know, to a certain extent. So it's not like he, she hasn't got the chops for it. Like, she can do it. Anyway, I'm focusing too much on this, I feel. Um, what we do see then is Tom Hanks, um, Chuck Noland, a slight change in his... Inter- like, physically, he's changed a lot in his time on the island. Internally, how much has he changed? And what we get then is his apology to his friend Stan, for not connecting with him properly about Stan's wife, Mary, who's died of Sam, cancer. Sam, I think it's, isn't it Sam? I thought it was Sam, but oh, it doesn't know. matter. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's a weird moment because they sort of set that up at the start where Tom Hanks is like, oh, I can get you a number yeah. of a, 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 a doctor who might be able to help. And this, I, I feel that like this is supposed to sort of set up the idea that Tom Hanks is so busy with his job and so career motivated that he hasn't even noticed or considered that his friend is in a dire situation and might need his help. Am I right? I think it's more that he feels awkward and he can't make the connection. Like, he, yeah, I think there's definitely something that he hasn't really noticed, but he is told explicitly Mary's got cancer. And all he says is, um, I can recommend a doctor, which is a very practical thing to do, but isn't a very emotional thing to do. And it's not really what his friend needs in that moment. You can see how awkward he looks. It's like, we don't need that. What I need is for you to say that you're sorry and that you're here for me and, and whatever else, which is what he manages to do after he comes back from the island. And that, I think that's a nice moment. Okay, I honestly could have done without it. I feel really? that there's so much. Go- yeah, uh, like with this, it, I think for for me the start is way too long anyway, and I think there's enough with Helen Hunt, and that should be the focal point, and the idea that he's too career motivated. I think we've established that. I don't think adding the friend in there is that important. And also his friend throws him the worst welcome back party ever at the end, which looks just grim, like loads of people drunk in the afternoon in a hotel room with free food. (laughs) What am I talking about? It looks amazing. (laughs) Apart from he's put that big platter of crab like in the centre of the buffet, which I think is insensitive under the circumstances. Yeah, but I I do like in these scenes, you you see him looking longingly at the seafood and he looks longingly at a lighter and a penknife all these things that just would have changed his experience and we take them for granted. I don't think it's that. I think when he looks at the crab, he's like, look at all this waste and I was surviving and this was all I had to eat apart from coconuts, which you can live on, was Mm. this crab um, and look at you. It's just all going to go to waste sitting here in this hotel room. And also it's a bit insensitive. It's like the Bill Hicks joke, you know, when Jesus Christ comes back to earth, do you think he's going to want to see a crucifix? It's like when Tom Hanks (laughs) comes home from a desert (laughs) island, do you think he's going to want a crab platter? Um, and Helen Hunt won't come to see him because for some reason she can't and her husband Chris Knott is like goes to see Tom Hanks in her place and says look things are a bit confusing for her and then we do get quite a long I mean it is too the end is too long we get quite a long sequence where Tom Hanks goes to see Helen Hunt to you know to say look this is like where are we like what are we going to do and the Helen Hunt declares him the love of her life um, 
and he sort of says, okay, but you know, you've got your own family now. And it's, it's sort of agreed that they will go their separate ways, I think. Um, but I think it's, it works out the right way. I think him telling her, no, her telling him that she's the love of his life is a little bit unnecessary because clearly they weren't right for each other because his job did come first. Um, and he says, you know, he'd already blown it. He should never have got on that plane. But it's quite, it's a really well done scene in that I suppose I could buy that she might think that he was the love of her life because it didn't fizzle out. She didn't get to see the end of the relationship naturally. It's very dramatic. If you're lost at sea, it kind of makes you the perfect boyfriend because you die before you can fuck it up. So it makes sense that she would be that uh, attached to him still. But also, couldn't he be the love of Helen Hunt's life, but she's not the love of his life? Yeah. Because I feel like there's a suggestion that there's someone else is the love of his life potentially at the, at the end of the film. Yeah, which I don't like. I think it's a really it's a really interesting scene the to and fro at that mm. point mm. because you are kind of as the viewer looking to see who really is at fault here because mm. Helen Hunt has a family and kids and you know, she'd be like just walking out on that life if she got back with Tom Hanks. So I watched it through twice and she does run after him when he's going to drive off. She shouts for him to come back. He comes back and opens the door for her to get in the car. So she's kind of instigated the idea that like she's going to leave with him. And then they're sitting in the car and he starts the engine implicating that he's now going to take her away. Then she stops him and says, look, I can't do this in so many words. And then he goes, I know, you have to go home, and drives her home, which suggests that maybe he was always just going to drive back into the drive and say, we can't do this. So they both come out of that exchange when neither was ever going to do the wrong thing, and that's why it's very clever. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Do we want to talk about the very end, the crossroads, um, the angel wings (laughs) package? What? Uh, No, just the very end. It's like uh, in a movie that doesn't really do subtlety very well, that crossroads metaphor is like, is he perhaps at a crossroads in his life? I can't. What what is the significance of him standing at those crossroads, I wonder? I wonder. And you could go anywhere. I've written the phrase, this is a bit on the nose, about eight Mm. times while watching this film. (laughs) Um, yeah. yeah, you know, the, even the, the, the angel El- wings, the angel wings, the the Elvis songs that they use, like you know, Return yeah. to Sender, the the Crossroads, that you know, as we said, the fact that it, time rules over him and he's diary obsessed, and and some of the things he said, I'll, I'll be right back. Time rules over over us without mercy. Like, there's so much that's on the nose, and then it it ends with the Crossroads. It's almost it's too much. It's too wrapped up in 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 the sort of perfect symbolism. Yeah, mm, but it does it does do that great thing that like a lot of the best movies in history do, which is start and end on the same scene, but the opposite emotion because it starts. Oh, that's with nice. The crossroads. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's nice. Did you clock that that Bettina was the woman from the start the first time you watched it? Because I did no, not. No, I did not. No, me neither. <laughs> and I didn't get the fact that that was her. I didn't get it. The fact it was her husband in Russia who was cheating no. on her that was getting the package and that. That's why we knew she was um, a divorcee at the end. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was all new information to me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I thought Dick was dead. Yeah, I thought he was dead because I thought Bettina was an old lady's name and also she's got a 
like a welding mask on. So I couldn't tell how old she was. So I just made a quick judgment that like Bettina, she's in her 70s and then Dick has died and that's it. And then the woman in the truck to me was just some random hot woman who drives past and flirts with people occasionally. Well, this time I went back and checked. She does actually pull that mask up at the start of the film. So you do see her face and see that she is a hot redhead. But um, <laughs> but but even 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 the on the nose stuff, like the first thing she says to him at the crossroads when she pulls up is "You look lost." It's like, oh yeah. wow, we're really calling this out. A hot redhead. I just uh, for uh, anyone listening, uh, Chris used to write those cards that you'd find in phone boxes around London. <laughs> Still do, mate. It's tough out there for a freelancer. Yeah, it is. Straight in times. You'll do massage, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, not a no not a no so, so he's left standing at those crossroads what do you think happens next uh, Wilson drives up and goes <laughs> what the hell are you doing where have you been I have been at sea are you just going to leave me there and who's Bettina by the way get in the car I think he goes to Bettina asks her out but then asks her if he can call her Wilson from now on <laughs> oh god oh that's role play volleyball oh uh. Uh, or just puts like just puts a bloodied hand on her face oh, oh. Come on. <laughs> my new friend dunlop is not impressed with that joke by the way but i do feel like the three three of the roads lead in different in new directions and the one he finally turns to is the one towards her Okay. I think that's what happens. And therefore, I do think the suggestion is that, you know, he's going to start a new life potentially with this. Hey, you know, we just uh, met on the road. Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that annoys me. Cause it's like, what if she, why would it just be assumed that just because she's pretty, she's like, yeah, sure, come and move in. Like, no, yeah, well, there you there's go. There's a connection between the pair of them in that, that sort of love at first sight way, don't they? I think it. I think it alludes. It alludes to that. Yeah, and he can certainly go. Oh wow, you're also the woman who. There's a great talking point about you know, like oh, um, I was on an island uh, on my own for two years. I wonder how often he uses that story. By the way, I wonder how many parties that were like really swinging, uh, swinging were uh, were really happening parties that he was at. Was suddenly the atmosphere was ruined because he was like Chuck was doing his. I was on a desert island for uh, two and a half, four years. By the way, yeah. so um, so yeah, no, it's great, yeah. great that you're having a great time, really great and lovely party. But can we all talk about me and the fact I was on a desert island for four years, please? <laughs> Again. It's a bit, I can imagine him using that story a lot. We didn't talk about the suicide, though. Um, I think it's really, uh, visually, like it was a dry run for Robert Zemeckis doing The Walk. You know that movie that he shot um, about the walking between uh, the, oh, yeah. the World Trade Center towers, which is literally sickening to watch if you've got vertigo. This, when he's looking down from the peak of the mountain, is um, a little bit like that, I thought. Really good shot. Mm. Have you not seen that movie? It's quite good. Well, that bit's good. The rest of it's all right. Yeah, I didn't connect it to this film, but um, I did see that film. Oh, I just thought it was lucky that he'd found a man-shaped log to test his noose with and how unlikely that is. And why don't you turn that into your friend? Because it looks like a person. (laughs) I wrote, what is the weird children of the corn style (laughs) idol he finds that he hangs himself? Yeah. I'd be like, oh, there are people on this island after all because they've carved idols. Yeah. Great. Shall we do the bits? Yes. 
Unless anyone has any more on Castaway right now. I just had one piece of trivia. Did you notice the interesting thing about Tom Hanks's character's name? Yes, No Land. It's Chuck Noland. It's it's C No Land. Oh, that's good. Oh. <laughs> that's brilliant. Of course, Chris spotted that. Yeah, a little bit on the nose, but <laughs> that's what this film oh, does. Uh, the only bit of trivia, if we're doing a little bit of like throwing in some trivia at the end, is uh, the TV show Lost came from the existence of Castaway. They were going to do a Castaway TV series, which over time eventually metamorphosized into Lost, but it's only thanks to this movie that we had TV sensation Lost. Yeah, was that true? I read that and I didn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't I, actually yeah, do I, anything to back it up. I did some digging. Um, I did some digging, uh, largely uh, about um, a guy called Jeffrey Lieber, who was hired to uh, develop a TV series called Castaway the TV series, which then metamorphosized into something called Nowhere. And he was told to write something hyper realistic and told it was going ahead and told that the shark attack he put in it was too unrealistic and he had to take it out because they were dying for something hyper real. And then they turned around and gave it to J.J. Abrams because he said, let's do it supernaturally. <laughs> That's how it got turned into Lost. And uh, even though Jeffrey Lieber gets uh, created by credit at the start, um, that's all he got uh, from it. So he's a little bit um, upset that he wasn't given a chance to develop it himself. Oh, interesting. Right, the bits. Cool. That's, uh, Vicky, do you want to take us through these things? It was your movie. Sure. Um, Alex, what was your best scene? My best scene uh, is the scene that makes me feel like a human because uh, I exhibit the emotion of sadness, which is Wilson floating away. Um, it never fails to make me cry. It, it's a gut punch of a scene. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And then I cry. And the tears trickle down my face and into the corner of my mouth, and they taste salty like the sea in which Wilson will now make his home forever. That's really beautiful. Um, Chris, what was your best scene? Same. <laughs> uh, I like I like the way we see Wilson drop before uh, Chuck does. I think that's really well shot. And then, um, as I said before, I think Hanks just sells the hell out of it, and and it is it's absolutely heartbreaking. So yeah, I'm the same. Okay, I mean, I like the crash, the plane crash. I think it's brilliant. It's very it, just the fact that it, how long it goes on for, and it's it's genuinely terrifying. I'm not really scared of planes and plane travel air travel um but it makes me terrified and it makes me not want to get on a plane so i think it's done a good job there yeah and it's not often a film really makes me hold my breath but that scene yeah. does to the point that i nearly died watching it so apart from the man who gets his head smashed in and just rolls around screaming because that's a bit distracting <laughs> i think i think that really makes it realistic though because that's what would happen you don't normally see that in in film in in plane crashes because it's more yeah. about the spectacle but the realism you would just crack your head open and just roll around on the floor i think <laughs> although he only cracks his head open because he goes to tell tom hanks to stop pissing about on the floor looking for that watch so it's kind of tom hanks's fault which i thought was a little bit like oh maybe that guy would have survived as well if he'd stayed in his seat and not gone hey chuck get off the floor agreed agreed um mvw chris wilson yeah wilson i i agree <laughs> mine is also wilson um i did read an interesting fact that apparently i can't back this up um 
your brain doesn't distinguish between self-talk, talking to yourself or to Wilson, and actual conversation with real people. It's processed in the same part of your brain. Isn't that interesting? Um, so seriously, are you saying if we all, if we all did build some sort of effigy of a, a, a person mm. and talk to it during these times, mm. we would be receiving the same kind of interaction as we would if there was a real human here? Yeah, on a very basic level. You'd, you'd miss out on other I'm things. I'm looking for basic right now. I don't like deep. I like basic. Do you like yeah. cheese? I like cheese too. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> if that's true, I don't know why I'm bloody doing this podcast with you two. I know. <laughs> I've been doing so it you, with a couple you're... of shoes. <laughs> Alex, what is your MVW? Listen, listen to Mr. Moneybags over there. A couple of shoes. I've just got the one. Um, he is Wilson. Same, yeah. I'm going for Wilson as my MVW. Either either Wilson or a plate of candied yams. Oh, that's a good question. What's funny about this is you've got to feel sorry for Tom Hanks if he's listening because we've all picked an inanimate object <laughs> which he brings to life with his acting but we've gobbled the ball. <laughs> I, I think it's the other way around. Um, Wilson saves Hanks. Hanks. Hanks is floundering. He's out of his depth. <laughs> um, if you could make one change, Chris, what would you change? Um, I would have made Tom Hanks pudgy using padding rather than have him actually gain weight because then they wouldn't have had that break for so many months, meaning Robert Zemeckis couldn't have made What Lies Beneath, which is fucking You're awful. insane. It's a terrible film. It's, you were, it's, that's mad. It's one of it's the worst brilliant. films I've ever seen at a cinema, so um, <laughs> that would be my change. I love that film. <laughs> I'm on the fence. Yeah, I don't really like it or hate it. So, I mean, you know, any fans of What Lies Beneath or haters of What Lies Beneath are catered for profoundly on this episode because we've got covered everything. I know, that's why we're is a good it, team. Yeah, it's perfect, yeah. That's the one with, uh, is that the one with George Clooney and no. uh, Michelle Rodriguez? No, Harrison no. Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. Carry on, Yeah, close enough. I, I, I know, I just wanted to pick two actors who I <laughs> and replaced them. I'm being weird because I've been on my own for quite a long time. Anyway, go on, What's the what are we doing next? Uh, uh, Alex, what was your change? Okay, I would cut down the start. Um, I'd have less time in Moscow with Tom Hanks shouting at Russians like the Cold War's still happening, uh, or a shorter Christmas dinner um, because I'm sort of <laughs> I, I'm like I'm like I said it's a lovely spread, but we're really lingering on this spread. Oh wait, candied yams, keep them, but everything else, just move it on a bit. It's a hell of a long time before we end up on that plane. Mm. Um, I would change. I would like to see the progression between having been on the island for like however many weeks it is, and then we cut to four years later. I just like a quick montage, love a montage anyway, um, of him learning new things at one year, two years, three years, um, and what he gets wrong and all the rest of it. I think it's a shame just to go from you're new and then bang, four years later, you're like the wild man of the woods. Um, we miss out on a lot of stuff. So that's what I would change. You could have that montage to I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany. Fantastic idea. Absolutely. Mm, love that. Well done, Chris. That's great. Thanks. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, then. So that is Castaway done. Now we are fast forwarding to my second choice, which was Moon. I gave this to you, Chris. We are in 2009. Take us away. Okay. Uh, this was supposed to have a backing track with me singing. But we can't do that. The technology is not allowing us to, which is a good thing, as you guys have heard me sing before, and it's not pleasant. So this is going to be a spoken word version of Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival. Oh, God. You ready for this? (laughs) Yeah. No. I'm going to tell the whole story of the film now. Here we go. I see a bad moon rising. I see a bloke who looks like me. Work for a greedy corporation who cloned Sam Bell for a fee. Don't fly home tonight because new Sam will take your place. There's a bad moon on the rise. I hear harvesters are blowing. I am uncovering the truth. I see my toilet overflowing. I even (laughs) lost a bloody tooth. Don't fly home tonight because new Sam will take your place. There's a bad moon on the rise. Get your helium together. Hope you are quite prepared to go. Forget that we're birds of a feather. You've got some vengeful seeds to sow. Do go home tonight because new Sam will take your place. There's a bad moon on the rise. Is that it? <clears throat> right, so Moon by Duncan yep. Jones. Sam Bell reporting to Central. Everything running smoothly. Over and out. Rock and roll. God bless America. Turn my side. Who is he? You tell me who that is. Perhaps you're imagining things. What's going on? Where did he come from? Why does he look like me? You've been up here too long, man. You've lost your marbles. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. 
know what's happening. This is my mind. I know. Did you guys see this one in the cinema? I did not. No, I didn't see this in the cinema. I saw this uh, on an home uh, on an home entertainment system. Me also. Okay. I did. Uh, let's talk a bit about the background of this film. Then um, it is inspired by four things. Uh, it was um, about being in a long-distance relationship, which Duncan Jones was in at the time when he put this together and all the insecurities that can cause. It was inspired by the time he spent at school in Nashville, Tennessee, where he felt lonely and isolated. And I think it's interesting that that lasted for three years, which is the three years that we get in the movie. And it was inspired by a book called Entering Space by Robert Zubrin, which is a practical guide to how we make money in space, which Duncan read. And then it was also inspired by a conversation with Sam Rockwell, uh, which I spoke to Duncan about. So this is a quote uh, Duncan Jones gave me about this. He said, we met up to discuss another film um, and that we ended up not doing, but we started having a chat because I wanted to work with him. There was this period of science fiction in the late 1970s and early 80s when films like Outland, Silent Running and Alien, particularly the first half of Alien, where it's much more naturalistic and about what it's like to work on a spaceship. Uh, Those were the films that Moon was really inspired by. So that's how it came together. Um, It was advertising guru Trevor Beattie and Trudy Styler, who is uh, Sting's wife, who who produced Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. They got behind it, but they only... Oh, is that why Sting is in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels? That is correct. Yeah. Okay, right, 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 right. right. Uh, but they took a real chance with this because they started spending the money in pre-production before they had, uh, when they only had half of the money. And actually they were two weeks into principal photography before they secured the complete budget. So uh, they took a real chance uh, making this movie, but I think it worked out pretty well. It looks great for its budget. I will say that. I'm a... <laughs> This is one of those films that you watch and you go, why do we not still use practical effects more? Don't answer that. It's obviously a financial thing a lot of the time because it's more expensive to build models in the space and what have you. But all of the practical effects in this, the harvesters that you mentioned, the rover, seeing the base from outside, this huge model they actually built for all of that. I love it. It feels tangible. But it was all done using miniatures as well. So not as expensive as, you know, with the Martian, which we'll get onto. You know, that was all lifestyle stuff they built in a huge hangar, whereas this was all done with uh, miniatures like the films that Duncan name checked. And I mean, I don't know. I think it, I think, as you say, I think they work on screen. What, what do you think, Vicky? Yeah, I think it looks um, I mean, you can tell that it hasn't got like well the martian style budget behind it but it doesn't look um it doesn't look like red dwarf basically and there's nothing wrong with red dwarf but it, it doesn't look like that um and i think <laughs> well no apparently um duncan jones um reused loads of set pieces that he found from an abandoned red dwarf movie on this <laughs> actual film the uh, like the sleeping quarters um were like views from a, a red dwarf uh, movie that they never made so there's a lot of red dwarf on screen here it looks so comfortable as well like his it, just the way he like the fact he's got like that leather chair sam rockwell's got a leather chair in his quarters and it just looks fun and nice and 
clean, <laughs> spacious. It made me want a little single bed with all my stuff around me. I thought yeah. the little single bed he had was like right cosy. Yeah, it does look cosy. I was really jealous. Je- I was jealous <laughs> of his loungewear for a start. I was oh, jealous yeah. of his kitchen. I was jealous of a lot of the stuff he's got. Not of being a clone, obviously, but. I had a weird thing where I was, when I was at university, uh, in fact, for the second time, in fact, you've seen the room I'm about to talk about, Victoria. The, you know that room that um, I had? Uh, oh, wait, did we know each other in the first year? Yeah, we did. You know, like where everything you had was like in this tiny little space. Like yeah. I could see literally 99% of my human possessions from my bed. And the toilet was in the room. And it was, I, I think as you expand, as you get older and maybe have like more space to fill, it clutters your mind. And there's something quite pure about having all your belongings and a single bed in one tiny space. <laughs> it's quite monk-like. Mm. So when the film kicks off, uh, we're told that energy has been running out on Earth. And there's a company called Lunar Industries who is producing fusion energy. They're harvesting something called helium-3 from the far side of the moon and servicing the energy needs of nearly 70% of the planet. Uh, Helium-3 is a real thing. It's a light, non-radioactive isotope of helium with two protons and one neutron. Do you know what that means? No. No, me neither. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Take it away, Alex. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, well... Obviously, uh, two protons uh, are positive charged uh, and uh, two neutrons, which have have no charge. So uh, electrons don't carry any mass. So it is a massive two. Excellent. Um, and there's a lots of speculation in real life about helium-3 becoming a future energy source. And there's thought to be an abundance of it on uh, the moon, even more than Earth. So, you know, this is rooted in potential, uh, you know, our potential future, th- th- this story. But um, we meet Sam Bell, played by Sam Rockwell, who is working on a facility on his own on the moon, um, where he's overseeing the harvesters and launching canisters uh, bound for Earth containing uh, helium-3. It's quite good, isn't it? At the start, where we see the advert, we see the advert from the company at the start, Lunar Industries, and it really sets them up as this lovely, clean energy, nice guys company, which I really like the whole Mm. idea that runs through this, that on the surface, massive corporation, but the good guys, because they're actually, they've sorted out the energy thing on Earth, but really behind the scenes, doesn't matter what front they put up to people, they're still dark corporate bastards. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a tale of corporate greed, isn't it, under the surface? Um, Right. So Sam has been up there for three years on his own, and he's two weeks from heading home. Uh, But the comms are down, uh, meaning he can't talk to anyone live, and he's talking to himself on a regular basis. And he's starting to get headaches, and he's bad stomach and becoming short-tempered. Uh, so all is not well. Uh, the first time did you you watch this? Did you figure out what was going on early in proceedings? As in the clones thing, like they were going to be clones. Hmm. No, no, I didn't. I had no idea clones were coming along at this point. Yeah, I mean, I thought maybe they were robots, or I don't know. I think the, when the film starts off, you kind of think that this this could be a horror film as well. It, it, there's something sort of about the tone of it and the pacing of it that that seems like almost like The Shining or something. That something really bad's going to happen. I have my first question, Chris. Mm. Now, these clones spend three years on the moon. 
doing the job of Sam Bell. Yeah. Is that because they have a three-year lifespan because that's built into them, which is why there are tons of clones, as we discover, all waiting for their moment to run the base for three years? Is it because they've been constructed to only last three years before they start going crazy and realise that actually maybe this is weird? Or do they have that lifespan because of radiation on the moon being quite high and you can't protect yourself from it? And so the radiation finally gets them and that's why he's dying at the end, the original clone, because of radiation sickness, because he has all the symptoms of it. Um, I thought that was built into them, that they would become sick after three years and be replaced. Uh, but it's a good question as to why they would do that. What do you think, Vicky? I think it's built into them. Towards the end, um, the, when they're talking, the two Sams are talking about going home and original Sam, OG Sam, uh, says to new Sam, they wouldn't let us live. And so I think it's built into them that they'll only last three years because someone has determined that three years is the maximum amount of time a human being can withstand being alone or talking to a little acid smiley face computer before they go bonkers. See, I disagree. I think it's the opposite. I think they, financially, if you're a massive company, you'd have as few clones as possible. So you wouldn't build in, a, build in an expiration date unless you had to. But also, it adds a really depressing element to the story that the clone who returns to Earth is still only going to live like his three years. He's not going to survive because yeah. he's no longer being affected by the radiation. And although yeah. I'm sure Chris is going to mention it, the the scene from the other Duncan Jones movie where we, which is built into the same universe uh, raises questions about that, but we'll come to that. Yeah. We've got ahead of ourselves. Cause um, we meet Gertie uh, before we find out that he's a clone. Uh, what were your feelings about Gertie? The, his robot helper. Um, I, I thought that Gertie, uh, as a character, as a computer, is not consistent because Gertie seems to want to help Sam and it's the sort of like Asimov directive that, or it's a version of that, that he will always help him. But in helping him, he sort of blows this company's whole ruse that they've got clones and tells Sam the truth. And that didn't make any sense that he would help him in such a way. It's displaying a human emotion, like they've bonded. So oh, that's interesting because I thought for the first half of the film, I thought he we're meant to think he's not trying to help him. I think for the first half of the film, they kind of throw you off that scent by um, he sort of lies to Sam and we overhear him saying stuff to people on Earth that kind of goes against Sam. But I think that's what Vicky's saying. I think it's completely, I wrote that down as well. It's so inconsistent. Gertie goes from being menacing, which is a really good scene where he's locked him in and he won't let him leave, to then being very nice and going, I'm just here to help you, Sam. And it's never made clear whether Gertie has developed a conscience or he's become yeah. sentient in some way and is actively choosing to help Sam when he goes, if you reboot my hard drive, they'll never know. It's like, well, that is him as a sentient AI as opposed to just a helper droid. It's unclear. I think everything he's doing is to help Sam, though, from from the word go. That's his directive. And I think everything he does, even when he's he's it, when he's lying to Sam, it's for Sam's own good. So you think that directive means that even when it seems like he's locking him in the base and trying to keep secrets from him and hiding the fact that they do have a live link up with Earth is all because if Sam finds out he's a clone, he'll go mad? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, I'm not sure. So he's getting messages from his wife, uh, but they, they're not live. They're pre-recorded messages. Um, and uh, so uh, this is when we start twigging that he, he might be a clone. Um, he starts having hallucinations. He sees a girl sitting in his chair, sitting in a chair who we later realise is his, his teenage daughter, uh, meaning that he has some connection to, to previous clones, potentially. Um, and then he has this accident, which uh, in his Lunar Rover, which he wakes up in the infirmary. And this is uh, the point where the new clone arrives. So we have two Sam Bells, two Sam Rockwells. Um who I think if you do the maths, um, it's clone five is the one that's injured and clone six is the one that's woken up, I think, based on how long he's been up there and the three-year um, lifespan that he has. But um, And then sort of Sam starts working on a plan to figure out what's happening and maybe survive. Um, but yeah, we've got two Sam Bells uh, interacting with each other. Do you think those scenes were done well with the two Sam Rockwells? Oh my god, I can't get enough. Yeah, yeah, Sam Rockwell's genius. The only thing better than one Sam Rockwell on screen is two Sam Rockwells. And he makes the characters so very different. Um completely like, you know, this new fresh faced guy who's very much like by the book initially and like what's going on here and you know, the jaded, long haired one. I think it's great. Yeah, really, really good. I love the fact that they don't want to talk to each other because they don't they don't want to be a clone, but they are. And the long haired, sort of more dishevelled Sam Rockwell makes an effort to bond and says something like, "We had a daughter," and it's like that's such a weird thing to say because he didn't, you know, ten minutes ago he didn't know he was a clone, and now he does, and he's trying to reach out and make friends with himself. It's really well done. And it's a strange kind of acceptance that they have. There's no big when yeah. there are two of them there. There's never that huge fireworks moment like, what are you? Who are you? Hang on. I'm me. So who are you? It's this very sort of like natural, like, okay, cool. So you're me yeah. and I'm, I'm me. Let's try and work this out. Although I will say when um, we talked about the lack of subtlety, although here it is clearly played for laughs, when he hears I am the one and only by Chesney Hawks. That's <laughs> <laughs> very nice. And a bloody good song. Um, it really I, is. I still no. play my seven inch of one and only by Chesney Hawks. Oh my God. It's a properly good pop song. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the, how they figured out how to do all the twin stuff. Um, cause as, as we said, this was all done on quite a low budget without many effects. They watched all the extras on the Criterion DVD of Dead Ringers. Um, the film where Jeremy Irons plays twins and, and, and both Duncan and Sam Rockwell said it was their film school. So behind the camera, it was, it was helped Duncan figure out how, who to shoot first and how to do it. And whoever's driving the scene, you shoot that person first, whichever character, and then the reactions can grow from that and Sam Rockwell figuring out how to play off himself by, by seeing how Jeremy Irons did it. Oh, I thought you were going to say technically. I'm interested in technically how they did it. No, technically, technically as well. Yeah. I, I mean, I still don't know how they did the scene with the table tennis when he sort of jumps over the table. That's the bit. Cause you're like, okay, so it's a locked off shot where you shoot one side and then you shoot the other side and just splice them together. But yeah, the bit where he crosses the middle line is weird. Yeah. Um, but I think then we get a very sort of moving scene where um, uh, Sam Bell 5 uh, goes out in the buggy, uh, oh no, Sam Bell 6 even, uh, and managed to get the communications going and ends up calling his house, realising yeah. that his wife has died, that his daughter's grown up and that 
the original Sam Bell is alive and well down there. Um, and I feel like that scene's done really well where um, he just says, I want to go home and, and um, he's crying. And then we get this shot of Earth so far away. Yeah, the I want to go home bit. That's really, it's, uh, and he says that's enough. And it's, and it's just really, really, it's just so sad. And it's not overdone. Like a lot of this isn't overdone. Interesting that in the week that we're doing isolation movies, ev- of all the pe- of all the men we're talking about, they all want to go home, and yet we're stuck in our homes. And what we really want to do is go out. So let's just think about that when it comes to picking some films over the next few weeks. Maybe we want to go out a bit. Good, good advice there from Vicky, Chris. Thanks, thanks for that, Vicky. Thanks. <laughs> My choices this week. I'm feeling under pressure now. Suddenly, <laughs> um, but yeah, Sam starts having this this real existential crisis, doesn't he? Because he realizes his world is a lie, his life is a lie. And and then it starts asking questions. I think the film of 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 whether we are, what is human? What does it mean to be human? Um, something that I think you know. Just when I was making my notes this week, Westworld's back. Westworld seems to ask that question every week, the TV series, but in a much more bloated and convoluted way. But it it's stuff that Blade Runner, um, I think covers that territory ex machina recently did um but i just think it's done very simply and very sort of um under the surface here mm. yeah i mean can we get to can we mention the scene in the duncan jones film mute which i have not seen i've seen the scene now because i did my research which is set in the same universe as moon and set after moon and features a court scene in which the original sam bell is uh, being faced with his 156 clones who've all been brought back from the moon. Well, we should jump to the end then, shouldn't we? Because he he escapes and, and goes home and we hear, uh, we hear uh, voices saying that he makes it home and that there's a court case starting and someone asks if he's a wacko or an illegal immigrant. Um, yeah. And so that kind of sets up what, what, as you say, is in the background in Mute. Yeah, so it's an interesting moment because it uh, the ticker on the screen in that moment sort of says uh, Luna Industries employee uh, gives evidence uh, in front of his 156 clones. And there's a little bit of dialogue which makes the original Sambel, the human Sambel on which these clones were based on, complicit in their creation and uh, very much... I guess a bad guy of sorts in the fact that the clones aren't particularly happy with him in that short scene. Yeah. I suppose I always thought he was complicit, like because I don't know. Just he's casual. He's got quite a casual tone of voice when his daughter is on the phone to one of the clones towards the end of Moon, um, and he just sort of says, "I'll turn that off." And because it's done like that casually, I read into that that he knows he knows about it. He just doesn't want to scare her by saying like, "Who are you talking to?" Um, and that it, in order to have to be cloned, he would have had to consent to that process. So he gets to have consent, but obviously his clones don't. So he is complicit in some way. Yeah, he did it for the money. Yeah, my, yeah. To see that, but my problem with that is that these clones are him. So you have to believe that because you sort of you empathise with the clones and you're on the clone side and they seem like good guys, you have to believe that the DNA they are made out of is also a good guy. But if he's not, and they're his clones, I think it muddies the waters of who's how like whose side you're on or how you're supposed to feel because they aren't actually cloned from a very nice person. 
Well, it depends d- if you d- think you can be born good or you become good. Like, and equally, you... do, do you think he's doing anything wrong by uh, cloning? The, the, these aren't people. Uh, you could say so. In the original Sam Bell might say, and therefore morally, he's not doing anything wrong. Has he watched any sci-fi ever? <laughs> it never goes well, does it? This. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is set in the future. All he needs to do is watch literally any sci-fi movie involving cloning and goes, you know what? What if these clones are actually kind of aware that they're clones and what is human and Westworld 3 is just starting? So what am I... <laughs> you know, I, like, he, sh- he should know. Yeah, and I think he's... I just think he's made that decision um, that it's worth it, the money. Maybe he knows his wife's sick. Maybe he needs the money for that reason. But we don't know that he actually... But whatever, it, maybe he is, or maybe he's just bought a car and he doesn't really love his wife. Where does this end? We can hypothesise about what real <laughs> Sam Bell is actually like. Maybe he just bought, like, the new PS7 or whatever is available in that day and age, you know, with one of those chairs that vibrates when you play racing games. Yeah, but whether, whether or not you think uh, Sam Bell is a villain the original one is, is whether or not you think these are real people that have consciousness and are human and, and deserve to live. But they're already born at a certain age with, uh, you know, like they're not, we don't see them grow up and become these people. They're X years old, whatever, 40 years old, let's say, when um, when they're created with like enough of his traits already because both the ones that we meet, which were they five and six, yeah. they both exhibit like the same kind of traits that the other has to a certain degree. Mm. Like like the six knows that five has anger issues because he had anger issues when he was first created. Mm. Which also, I guess, makes original Sam Bell an angry man. Yeah, potentially. Although maybe we'd all be angry in that situation. So had original Sam Bell, are we suggesting that he'd been there for three years and then was given the option of having clones made so he didn't have to stay up there? Because he would have died if he'd stayed there three years. So he can't have stayed there three years because of the radiation. Well, you have to fill in those blanks, whether he ever went there at all. or Also, I don't think we're saying definitely the radiation is what is is um, killing them off. I am. But, yeah, okay. you you are, yeah, you are. But me and Vicky aren't saying that. So I think you need to fill in those blanks yourself, Alex. We can't answer those questions for you. Since you're so good at making up stories, you do it. Right. Yeah, fine. I just thought, you know, I thought maybe we could do it together as a team. But no, I'll, I'll go away and do my own podcast about that. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we get... Oh, well, we've kind of done the ending now. So I don't know. Do you want to move on Ooh. to the bits? Yes. Okay. Uh, Vicky... What was your favourite scene in this one? My favourite scene is um, when the two Sams have a physical fight and new Sam breaks original Sam's model. He's making a miniature town. Mm. Um, And it must have been really difficult to film and it's an accomplishment to have filmed it. But it's also a very realistic fight. Like There's no like like crazy punches. It's just a lot of pushing (laughs) and a lot of... Uh, loud voices and it seems really sad as well that he the original Sam is really upset about his model um, and that new Sam just smashes it to bits to try and find this new the secret room with the other clones in and yeah as a feat of filmmaking it's very impressive but also a realistic fight that's just a bit uh, and depressing I like that and it must be quite depressing fighting yourself as well how depressing is it if you can't get on with your own self? Yeah, for sure. Although, as Will Smith proved, um, fighting yourself means you're only as good as yourself, so you know yourself's other moves in every combat situation. So there is no winner because yeah. you know what the other person's going to do. 
Run away. Yeah, Gemini man. <laughs> but there is in this instance because one of the sandbells is sick and weak and dying, and the other is sort of yeah from the strong. from the radiation oh, from the radiation. <laughs> yeah, that's why he's sick and dying. Just clarifying there, from bit the, clarity from the three year lifespan that the sandbells have. Uh, Alex, what's <laughs> yeah, your favourite scene? Because, uh, where he gets radiation sickness because of the radiation. <laughs> Any scene with that in. Uh, my best scene is um, <laughs> the dancing where he's uh, walking on sunshine. Uh, uh, I think that's great because Sam Rockwell is a hell of a dancer in real life. And it's just uh, so funny when he's dancing and the guy keeps, Sam Rockwell keeps turning it off and Sam Rockwell keeps putting it back on and dancing again <laughs> because it's super irritating too. Like, And I love that. Is he a really good dancer or does he have one move that he's absolutely nailed and he just uses it in every <laughs> film? That kind of stuff. Soft shoe stuff. It's like a soft shoe shuffle kind of thing that looks really cool. It is very cool. And bang, you're going to get it in every frigging movie you can shoehorn it into. I watched a. I went down a rabbit hole on Sam Rockwell dancing and I watched him on Jimmy Fallon doing some dancing. And now you've said that, yes, that is the dance he can do because he does it for every different dance they ask him to do. I actually asked him about it when I interviewed him whether he. Uh, whether he, um, he. Whether all his characters, the dancing is in the script or whether he asks for dancing to be put in the script. And he said it's a, it's a bit of both. <laughs> he does normally ask if there's a moment where he could do something. <laughs> oh that's funny i once interviewed ben stiller and he'd had i think three movies in a row where he'd done dancing like starsky and hutch and zoolander and i was like are you just picking roles that um, allow you to uh, show off your dance moves and he said no <laughs> <laughs> was it did he that glare at you did he glare at you when he said yeah. that there's a, there's a little bit of glaring, but yeah. it, was, it was just just no. It was pretty, pretty yeah. fancy. I, I like that. You know, we only had five minutes. It was efficient. <laughs> um, so last time I watched Moon, I was weeping when uh, he says, "I just want to go home." It really made me cry. So I would have picked that for my favourite scene, but I didn't cry this time. So I'm going to go for the scene this time. I really like the moment when uh, Gertie helps him with the computer password. Um, which is the first moment we think that Gertie's actually on his side and he says, helping you is what I do. Um, just because I liked that as a surprise and I was watching it with someone who hadn't seen it before and they were really taken aback by that moment because of how the film really builds Gertie up to be a villain. And I think they kind of lean into the fact that, you know, Gertie's a bit like Hal from 2001, which we know is is kind of, a villainous uh, computer on the surface and then using Kevin Spacey's voice, which always sounds a little bit sinister, which is why he was always cast as sinister characters. So yeah, I just like the fact that they kind of do the switcheroo on the audience at that moment. Mm. Uh, MVW Vicky. It is Sam Rockwell. Mm. Um, so what we t- we've talked about how the different how the Sams change over the years, but if you think about Sam Rockwell as an actor, he's playing two versions of himself, both on a trajectory towards change. So original Sam is pathetic and inwards, but he's also very sympathetic and understanding. So those are two quite conflicting things. New Sam is very tense, very quick with his temper, but he's ultimately a hero and risks everything to bring justice for all the other Sams. So you've got one actor playing two people, each with two conflicting halves of their personalities. And that is um, quite a thing to be able to do. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Alex? 
Yeah, it's going to be Sam Rockwell. He is my favourite actor on the planet, or indeed one of this planet's satellites, the only one, naturally. Nice. Uh, so, two Sam Rockwells. I think I want to do a shout out to Duncan Jones for coming up with this, and it's a hell of a debut. And also, I think credit, as we've said, uh, should go to Gavin Rothery, um, who did the miniature work on uh, this film. Um, there was a writer's strike when they were shooting it, so they ended up with getting some amazing artists and a guy called... Bill Pearson, uh, who died this week, very sadly, he worked on Alien, a lot of the great sci-fi films. And it was it was their combined work that made those miniatures sort of really feel like you were looking at a, a sort of lived in world. But my MVW is Clint Mansell, uh, mm. who did the score for this film. Um, I love this music. It's this driving, pulsing music that propels the narrative. Um and it's something I really love writing to as well. Uh, for the last 10 years, like when I'm write, writing anything, I often put on the moon score. Uh, if anyone um, if anyone wants to further investigate the early work of Clint Mansell, um, can I point you in the direction <laughs> of one of the greatest bands ever to grace uh, the shores of this country, Popoli itself, P-W-E-I, um, and any of their albums, because I was a huge Popoli itself fan as a kid. And... Um, I'd start with Defcon 1, Give Me Big Mac Fries to Go. It's an ode to music and fast food, and it's it's wonderful. Any Popoli Itself fans, guys? Uh, no. Uh, but I might be. No, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of his film work rather than uh, PWEI. Um, they were they were one of the groundbreaking acts of the mid eighties. They basically were one of the first uh, acts to take hip hop and samples and put them all together with indie music, and they create this wonderful sound. Popoli itself, go go discover them. Use your self isolation to discover Popoli itself. You will be very happy. There's and, loads of film references in their songs too. It's great. And speaking of his early work, um, D- Duncan knew uh, Clint before they made the movie, but they hadn't agreed that he would do the soundtrack. Uh, the score rather but he wanted him so badly that when he cut the film that he, he he put his rough cut together he used a temp score that used his Clint's Requiem for a Dream score and his Fountain score which uh, I think made him feel like he couldn't say no to him at that point so yeah love that score alright what would you change Vicky? Uh, I would have a lot more time having passed between um, original Sam back on Earth and our Sam's, the clones. So we realise that about 15 years has passed because his daughter, who he believes is a baby, is now 15. And I wouldn't do it like that. I would have it like 100 years just to um, increase his sense of dislocation and complete aloneness. And it's not even so much that his whole world has been turned upside down because his wife isn't his wife and his child isn't his child. It's that even when he went home, he wouldn't recognise home. That's dark. I know. Sorry. Uh, Alex? Um, Gertie. I mentioned it already. I, I I think Gertie, I think we'd benefit from Gertie. I know you, you love the moment where Gertie helps Sam, but I think it'd be great if Gertie was villainous. In this, it would very much change the movie, and I'm not saying some sort of like monstrous robo antagonist roaming the moon base, but I do really enjoy the scene where Gertie is very like you know Hal Nine Thousand. It won't let 
Sam outside. It's locked the doors and Sam's trying to reason with it about why he needs to go outside and trick it into letting him out. And there's a real malevolence to Gertie at that point. And I would like to see more of that. I think it could be a, a really scary robot but is there a, AI. Is there a malevolence to Gertie at that point? Or is it because it's Kevin Spacey's voice and you think Gertie's working against him at that point? I mean, it's the fact that, you know, I think right now it's sort of pertinent because, you know, he wants to go outside for his reasons and he's being told mm. and actually, like, like told in a very serious way and prevented from going outside. So it's that loss of freedom uh, mm. that, you know, is quite scary. I think at that point, suddenly you are you are at the behest of a higher power. Are you talking to our government now rather than me? Yes, government. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I know that Boris Johnson's a big fan of this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. um, well, for me, the change. Like I always, when I'm talking about this film, I always think it's a perfectly formed film for for sort of achieving what it sets out to do. So, there's not a lot I would really change about it. But maybe now I'm thinking about it, based on what you've said, I think we could have had a post credit scene with the one five six being woken up and then have 156 uh, Sam Rockwells having a little dance party on the moon before we hit home. <laughs> all, doing, all doing that one manoeuvre. Yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff. Well, I think we've covered moon. Any more for any more? No. So we are skipping forward now to 2015 and the final movie I picked and gave to myself, which is The Martian. Here is my introduction to The Martian on this week's Triple Threat episode. Over the years, there have been a handful of films that have given the idea of making a movie set on Mars a pretty bad rep. Films like Mission to Mars or Red Planet or Last Days on Mars. Or John Carter, or, or Ghosts of Mars, or Doom, or Mars Needs Moms. Thankfully, The Martian joins those hallowed ranks of being a movie set on Mars that is actually quite good. Like Total Recall is good. Maybe The Martian's not that good, but it's good. I'm waiting for Vicky to profoundly disagree with this sentence. <laughs> Here's the rub. It's going to be four years for another mission to reach me. And I'm in a hat designed to last 31 days. So I got to make water and grow food on a planet where nothing grows. But if I can't figure out a way to make contact with NASA, then none of this matters anyway. We've got an incoming message. Mein Gott. <laughs> Mark Watney's still alive. In your face, Neil Armstrong. There must be some kind of way out of here. Okay, so let's do the math. I have enough food to last for 50 days. He's going to starve to death long before we can help. So, I'm gonna have to science the shit out of this. He's 50 million miles away from home. He's totally alone. What the hell is he thinking right now? I am the greatest botanist on this planet. I know how to save Mark Watney. But we need the Hermes crew. We either have a high chance of killing one or a low chance of killing six. I'm not risking their lives. It's bigger than one person. No. I so. I hate this film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, before you tell us all why you hate uh, the Oscar-nominated film The Martian... <laughs> 
and I will do a little bit of background on this movie. Uh, so it's based on a book that I have actually read. Yes, uh, exclusive. One of the few books I've read, um, which uh, was written by a guy called Andy Weir, who uh, was not a professional novelist. He um, is a guy who self-published this book initially, um, and he is a guy who loves orbital dynamics. Uh, his idea of a good time, and these are his words, is sitting down and drawing on the knowledge of orbital dynamics that he's picked up as a hobby to imagine a space mission from beginning to end, getting right as many details as I can. So he wrote this book by uploading each chapter to his website and then checking the science with the people who were following him online. So he'd go, would this work? And so a lot of people actually contributed to this book in terms of helping him through the science quandaries he presented. It was then picked up by a publisher because it went into the top five self-published novels on Amazon, went on the New York Times bestseller list after that. And there's a lovely story from Drew Goddard, who did the screenplay based on his book, who said, uh, Weir was slow to accept the idea that he'd become a professional writer. We got to call him one day and say, Hey, I think you should quit your day job. Your life's about to change. It was one of those special moments in Hollywood when you get to actually do that. Although he didn't quit his day job because he didn't believe it for about a year. And then when the movie went into production, they said, you really can quit your day job now. This is actually happening. So it's one of those lovely Hollywood fairy tale moments. Have either of you read the book? No. Uh, I bought the book and then didn't read it and then got invited to visit the set of The Martian in Budapest. And so I thought, Christ, I've got to get my skates on. So I downloaded the audio book and listened to it on the plane. And it is the second and last audio book I've ever listened to. Do you know what the first one was? Uh, was it? I'm going to say. Up, I only ask because it's come up on the show. Oh, I know. Is it? Is it how to be the best version of me? No. Self, it's a self-help book. <laughs> Alan Partridge, you guys keep bringing it up. So yeah, I've listened to I've listened to uh, the book and I visited the set of this one as well. How was the set? Um, I've actually been to those studios in Budapest mm. where they filmed this Corda Studios, which are one mm. of the biggest sound stages in Europe, uh, I believe. There, I believe it is the biggest one in Europe. Um, right? Yeah, it was. It was really impressive, you know, because you you walked into that hangar and you you feel like you're on Mars. It, it's the whole thing's there, you know. All every they, they spent a lot of money on this, and it's all up there on the screen. I actually went to the same studios to cover, and obviously Ridley Scott directed this, so there's a connection there, to cover Blade Runner 2049, which they were filming um, the seawall sequence in that, where he has the fight on the seawall. They were oh, using wow. a huge water tank there. So you've got Ryan Gosling having a fist fight on the seawall, and the water was slashing over him, this wave machine, and the rain was coming down, and he must have been there for six hours doing this fight scene over and over again. And I watched it, and it was one of the few times I didn't want to be Ryan Gosling because <laughs> it looked intense. So um, Ridley Scott, as I said, directed it. It was going to be Drew Goddard who was going to direct it. Uh, he wrote the screenplay. Uh, Matt Damon was like, yeah, I'll do it with Drew Goddard directing. And then Goddard decided to produce an, uh, pursue an opportunity to direct Sinister Six, uh, which you remember was going to be 
around the time of the Amazing Spider-Man 2. That all went away. And Scott stepped on board. And, you know, being Ridley Scott, didn't take long after he joined for it to get the green light. Um, on that subject, uh, Goddard uh, expressed that he felt Scott made a much better film than he could have directed. He said, when it's Scott, collaboration is easy because I just revere him. Uh, Ridley Scott said, please stop calling it a collaboration. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. I just, I just made that up. I just made that up. That's not true. Ridley Scott didn't say that. It would have been hilarious if he had that. But, but, but once you've got Ridley Scott directing, I think that's probably part of the reason they got such an incredible cast with really, you know, fantastic big actors in in quite small roles. Like everywhere you look, there's a there's a great actor and and quite a famous face. Yeah. What a waste. Yeah. <laughs> all right before we get on to hating on this movie it's a little more uh backstory the exteriors of mars uh were at wadi rum uh a very famous uh unesco site in jordan which you'll have seen in a billion uh movies not just mission to mars red planet and the last days of mars but famously lawrence of arabia and i think prometheus uh ridley scott's other uh, other science fiction movie one of ridley scott's other science <laughs> fiction movies um was also uh shot there um other than that, and I'm probably just going to throw this in here right before Vicky uh, tears this wonderful film apart. It's um, US President Barack Obama, uh, Victoria, uh, the Barack Obama, uh, named The Martian as among the best science fiction films he's ever seen. So uh, there I'm you go. He's uh, incorrect. <laughs> wow. You can't get him right all the time, Barack. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is not happening. Why don't you like this movie? Okay, are you ready? The reason I don't like this film it's it's a fantastic open, a really really strong open. So within about five minutes, you establish the dynamic between the crew of the Hermes, which includes Matt Damon as Mark Watney. So they're friends. They've got a little bit of banter. It's all good. And then within seconds, um, you've got a whole load of trouble kicking off. Um, there's a storm rolling in. Looks amazing. The crew have to leave. Mark Watney gets separated from his crewmates and they leave without him and he's presumed dead. Amazing. And that's all within like, like five to ten minutes. Fantastic. However, yeah. <laughs> then, um, basically, I mean, this isn't the... I think if I hadn't have watched Castaway just preceding it, it wouldn't have come off as badly for me as it did. But it isn't an isolation movie. It's a rescue movie. So Matt Damon is very much... He's not by himself for very long. He makes contact quite quickly. But my main problem with the film is that he is the best man for the job in this situation. And so there's no conflict. So, ta-da, he's a botanist. That's fucking lucky, isn't it? Because you haven't got any food. So the whole film is him talking to the camera to uh or you know making contact with nasa to say problem oh no way i can fix that problem oh no way i can fix that and it's like oh for fuck's sake like you can just do anything so there's not much peril um you anything. don't like the entire premise of the movie then because that that is what the movie is meant to be about it's a celebration of how science can be used to get you out of a situation when he says i'm going to science the shit out of this this is this is why the book was um so popular with nasa and why yeah. nasa gave such support to the film because it makes space travel and space exploration seem plausible and portray science as a hero which i think is 
pretty good. Pretty no, good. It's, it's not. It's not the work of a. It's not the work of film to make science look good. Like you, it, I'm sure it made a brilliant book, but as a film where you're expecting conflict and tension, there isn't enough of it. So any opportunity for tension would be that. Uh, Mark Watney, Matt Damon, is angry with the crew for leaving him. And he says, basically, oh, no, it's not your fault. I, I don't have a problem. It's fine. It's fine. Um, any opportunities for connection? He's a man who, when he thinks he's going to die, he says goodbye to his parents. It's like, well, that's cool. But you have no other connections in the whole world at your age. Like, what's wrong with you? That's weird. Um, towards the end, I'm just going to jump ahead because I'm angry now. Um, Mm. the opportunity to go back and rescue Mark Watney, the crew are saying this will add uh, a couple of years onto our mission time and some of the crew have got kids and some of the crew have got families and they all just go, yeah, cool, we'll do it. There's an opportunity there for a fantastic scene where one person doesn't agree to it and what do they do with that one person? Because every member of the crew is vital. So how would they convince that person to do it? What would they do? But we don't go there. All we get is, yeah, cool, no problem. It's a, it's a film where people just have brainwaves. Donald Glover. Oh, I love Donald Glover. And he's like, yeah, cool. I've got an idea. And I was screaming at the TV. If you say slingshot, I will punch myself in the fucking face. Because is that all space travel is? It's just slingshots. I've watched enough films to be like, yeah, fucking slingshot it. That'll do it. That's irritating that I get there before Donald Glover gets there. Where, where... To give you to give you your due on that, um, one of the big complaints from the scientific community is this idea that Donald Glover is some sort of genius level savant who's gone, who's gone, how can we do this? How can we do this? How can we do this? <gasps> we can use a gravity slingshot and it's this big reveal. Yeah. Whereas in reality... That is literally the first thing NASA would have thought of. Like, this isn't going to be, this isn't as special as it's made out to be. They would go, check, gravity slingshot. And then he'd walk in and go, I've got this idea. They go, if it's gravity slingshot, Vicky's mentioned it already. And also, we're fucking NASA. So we've done that. <laughs> and we've seen, we've seen Armageddon. Um, yeah. Because yeah, on the, exactly. on the, we, we covered Armageddon. On the commentary of that, uh, which I talked about on that episode, uh, Ben Affleck uh, rips the piss out of Armageddon for two hours, but also rips the piss out of the slingshot concept. That it's just this weird Hollywood shorthand now that if you're a science fiction film, you have to have a slingshot in it. And we've all yeah. sort of taken it for granted. Oh, yeah, we all understand it, but it's. Yeah, madness. Yeah, but it's real, so Ben Affleck's wrong. Ben Affleck should not slag off science. That's, he should do what <laughs> Ben Affleck does well. Which is not science by the sounds of things. Yeah. Um, let me just have my final moan and then I'll shut up. But uh, Sean Bean in this film, like, what is his character beyond tired dad? It makes no sense to me what he's doing. And that's it. I'm finished. I'm done. Did, I, don't, did, I don't know why you like it. Did they um, Did they cast him for the one council of Elrond joke? Did you, <laughs> did you think just... Just so they could go, just so every trivia site on this movie ever would go, isn't it weird how it's called the Council of Elrond and Sean Bean was actually at the Council of Elrond? <laughs> it's crazy! What a coincidence! Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, fine. Um, I think we're going to have to go through the film in a little more detail than just hating on it, so we can actually bring out some of the gold contained in them, the Red Hills. Uh, first of all, I grant you that the start is fantastic. It does what Castaway takes 40 minutes to do in less than 10, so bonus. Um, although the alien storm that... Um, the Martian storm that uh, rips up the satellite dish and causes all their problems. In reality, science fans will know that is impossible. The storms on Mars are incredibly weak. So that was one of the few things that they actually took artistic license with. Um, 
Drew Goddard says on that subject, he was like, look, we had to exaggerate the wins in order to set up the situation uh, that sets the story in motion. Ridley Scott says the alternative was terrible. So NASA said, what the hell? It's only a movie. And when asked what the alternative was, Ridley Scott says, I can't remember. It was so boring. (laughs) I don't know what it could have been. I, I love the idea that it was something really boring, like, you know, they just sort of like didn't like one of the plants he grew, and so just left. <laughs> yeah, why is it? Why is a botanist up there when you can't grow anything on Mars? Good question. Very good question. I'll tell you why a botanist is on there. Oh, so that he of can course, go- it's a good question. Of course, it's a good question because it's down on the movie. Yeah, great. It's not a great question, Chris. The whole premise is that he's trying to grow stuff on Mars, investigate Martian soil. But go on, Vicky. Why you're, is it a great question? Then you're working the situation backwards. You're going, what would be the best person to strand on Mars who had no food? Oh, a botanist. All right, fine. F- put a fucking botanist up there. Wouldn't it have been better if it was someone that's like, I have literally no idea how to grow food. And so you can yeah. watch me learn how to do it. Yeah, wouldn't it have been great if he was like, oh, I don't know, a model painter? What if he painted the World War Two models and then he's like, I don't know what to do. Is Are there any models I can paint? Yeah, oh. no, because he, he needs to have some skill because he's trapped on Mars on his own. Yeah, like, it's not one not of those... He's not even si- on his own! He's not even on his own! No, but you see what I mean? Like, if he wasn't skilled in being able to survive, it's like... His skill should not allow him to still manage to stay alive, but he does. It's not an environment like... I get it if it was a desert island, you'd go... There are certain sort of basic things that anyone could sort of like... There's a challenge, but they could apply themselves. This is Mars. He has to be skilled in these things. Otherwise, he died very fast. Oh, no. I'm sorry. No, just not. My bugbear is you put the person in the situation who's the least equipped. You don't put the person in the situation who's the literally the best equipped. Like what if he wasn't, what if it wasn't Mark Watney that got stuck, but was Jessica Chastain or someone else who'd watched Matt Damon do his thing with potatoes, but didn't know how to do it because drama is conflict and tension and there isn't any. Well, they were going to do it with Jessica Chastain. She was going to be trapped, but then they realised that she'd just faint repeatedly for two hours. So <laughs> it wouldn't be a great oh, movie, yeah. there. I forgot. No. I Here forgot. we go. Yeah. Chris, Chris, did you like this movie? We, I haven't even found out if you like this movie yet. Well, I don't want to give it away until we get to the verdict. There should be some tension and jeopardy in this episode. I, well, no, I'm not, we're not saying we're going to pick it. We're just d- discussing the Martian. I'm not saying you have to tell us whether you're going to pick it. I like it a lot more than I liked the book. I think the book gets very bogged down in um, explaining the science, where at least uh, there's some um, attempt with the movie to sort of make it um, a bit more exciting and fun. Uh, The the book felt like I was being lectured a little bit too much, which is not the stuff of great adventure. (laughs) It's strange. I read the book and I loved the book and I gave it to someone and they put it down after six pages and went, this is unreadable. It's just like science. I'm like, yeah, I like it. I like the science, man. Look, you know, I did science at school. Did you not find that? I liked the science as well and I liked watching him make water and grow the plants and everything's going really well and then Jeff Daniels says, as the president of NASA or the boss of NASA or whatever, and he's like, yeah, things seem to be going really well so as long as nothing goes wrong, smash cut to the first thing that's ever gone wrong. Like as an editing choice, 
that's ridiculous. Like everything's been going brilliantly. And then Jeff Daniel says, well, as long as we keep up this good run, everything will be fine. Yeah. No, I see. Um, yeah. Uh, look, I watched this the first time at the cinema and I was very much in your court uh, on this movie, Victoria. I was like, there's no real highs and lows. Everything just bubbles along like in this sort of one level of like oh a bit of a problem oh solved it it does not a whole lot of drama in it but then watching it this time knowing that i came to enjoy its sort of warm sunday afternoon hug of a science fiction movie i found it really heartwarming as a film that might not have the most dramatic tension i think even one of the filmmakers said it's amazing this must be one of the only sci-fi movies where no one dies yeah but like it's it's great it, it it's ad, it's adapting a book uh for a start so no one dies in the book so you can't have anyone dying and also the only people who are going to die are the people who are in space and because they set up very early that the crew are would have to go back and they're not going to risk the lives of five astronauts to save one. At any point, if one of those crew members dies, it nullifies the whole point and Jeff Daniels is right at the start. So you do know very early on, no one's going to die, which removes a hell of a lot of the jeopardy. It does, but then you could replace that. Um, well, I, I think if just because you're adapting the book, it doesn't mean you have to slavishly uh, repeat what the book's done. You could you could have a death in it and and that would go towards... That would go towards sort of stating that that you know why would six people put their lives on the line for one people one person? Well, it's it's sort of the Saving Private Ryan um, storyline, uh, which involves Tom Hanks and Matt Damon having to make that decision. Bloody Matt Damon again, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just don't, I don't, I don't think you can because I, I, I honestly don't think the movie would work if like early on, like when Sebastian Stan is doing that. Um, little walk trying to there's a sort of like for a moment you think oh is something going wrong when he's in the hatch and like he's docking two spacecraft and maybe it's just the movie trope of like spacewalks in films like this can go wrong but you're watching that and you're going if he died there like they they literally should not have gone back for 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 one man and that the rest of the film is wasted like you you just can't have anyone die in this which i don't think i don't think there's a way that you could work that in and still have it have any emotional resonance by the end no, but you could replace that with some emotional connections between the crew or give Matt Damon a more emotional... I mean, obviously you're emotionally connected to your parents, but you could do something else with that character. So Because they do it with the other crew members. So Sebastian Stan and Kate Mara, they're sort of a couple. You see Jessica... Are they? Ch yeah. It's at the very end. Like, I didn't pick up on that. I mean, maybe, the, maybe there was one little glance, but I, I was like, what the hell is that bit doing there where she goes down to the airlock and gives him a kiss? I'm like, you, should, you needed to have signposted that a little earlier. It yeah. seems completely unnecessary. Yeah, that's right. And then you see Jessica Chastain talking to her partner. So everybody else gets connections, but not our main man. And so the whole world is watching this space rescue. But again, I was like, really? Like, they're watching Jessica Chastain dangling. Well, they can't see it, but like dangling from this spaceship to rescue Matt Damon. But you could do some more character work there. Like, I don't see how their plight captures the hearts and minds of the entire world. Like, it's like Trafalgar Square is packed and um, whatever. And it's like, no one cares. Who would care? Why would you care that colleagues are going to rescue a colleague? Who cares? 
Because it's Mars. Like, they're on Mars. It's space. It's space exploration. I think there is an, an... I think you'll be surprised when we eventually head to Mars. Like, it will be gripping. Like, when we landed on the moon, you know everyone watched that because it's like, we're landing on the freaking moon. I think this is like that, but Neil Armstrong's been left behind. People would watch it. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, admittedly, there there weren't streaming services in 1969, so you know, it's like you watching um, you watching the rescue. It's like, is there a picture? No, it's just audio. Fuck that. No, yeah. I'm going to binge watch the Sinner season three. Did you also think? I hope I haven't stolen this joke because it doesn't reflect well on me if I have. But the whole plan to fire Matt Damon into space in a pod and then connect and then replace the front of his ship with plastic and then dock with the spaceship just was like top gear (laughs) (laughs) I I grant you if you are going to pierce your suit uh, which already looks utterly ridiculous like and you're like I'm going to pierce my suit and there's a chance I may be able to use it to direct myself don't say I'm going to fly around like Iron Man, Ooh. whether it's a funny line or not, because when you actually see him do it, you're like, <laughs> it's like Iron Man removes <laughs> it in jeopardy again. Yeah. I'm like, this is supposed to be, is he going to make it? I'm like, oh, yeah, does it? Is it Iron man Yeah, I guess it's a bit Iron man <laughs> That was stupid. True. That is true. Um. Right, let's head back to some of the cast that you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Donald Glover. Love Donald Glover. He's great in this, uh, regardless oh. of the fact that he comes... Do you not think? He's brilliant in it, but if you ever give a character a line that says, I need another cup of coffee, you need to be asking yourself some serious questions because that is a draft one line, a placeholder line to be like, I need to wake up a bit. No one in real life says, without killing themselves laughing, I need another cup of coffee. No. Um improvised by the sounds of things though because he does he says that just after he falls over and he didn't mean to fall over he fell over he says he fell over by accident and just stood back up and just went no i need more coffee to continue the scene um so that they could use it because he thought it'd be good and they used it so they didn't write that line true god or did not i don't think bro i need more coffee (laughs) but yeah it's uh that's a bit of a bit of a cliche that one. Uh, yeah, Chris, at this stage, do you got anything to add? Well, in terms of um, Donald Glover, he has one of my bugbears in movies, um, which happens a few times in this film, which I think I've referred to before on the podcast: the Dot Brown blackboard moment, where um, <laughs> you know, back, back to the Future One, um, he says, "Oh, that's the flex capacitor. That's the thing that makes time travel possible." That's it. That's all you need. Done. We're traveling back in time. Back to the Future 2, it gets so complicated and convoluted what's happening with the time travel that Doc Brown literally has to take out a piece of chalk and draw a diagram on a blackboard to explain it to Marty, but really explain it to the audience what the fuck is happening in your film. And that happens over and over again in this film where people have to explain (laughs) and then over-explain and then double-explain. And I don't think that makes for good cinema when you, you keep having to have drawings and people using salt and peppers to tell you what's happening and where things are going. I will agree that I have written in my notes here, an astonishing amount of office stationery is used to represent the solar system. (laughs) Yeah. As we get sort of bogged down in space jargon, I don't quite understand, but um, they're saying it with such conviction that you just kind of go with it. So, yeah. Donald Glover does a lot of that. Then who else have we got here? We've got uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor as Vincent Kapoor. Uh, mm. He's very good. 
He's very good. Mm, no, he's a not. Lot. <laughs> he's just not. He's a great actor. He's not great in this. He's just, he's good for like the first half. And then he even he looks a bit like, what's going on? Oh, we're going to slingshot this. <laughs> he, he's, how much does he actually know about Mars? Because he's like the director of Mars or whatever. But it has to do that expositional job of having, saying like, what's that now? Where people explain things to him that he should obviously already know. Yeah. I he, do agree yeah. that if, if, if you work at NASA and you're the head of Mars, and you're actually at NASA, where you work as the head of Mars, <laughs> and you need a map of Mars, you're probably not going to go to the canteen and take a map of Mars off the wall uh, to draw on with a marker pen. Probably got a map of Mars somewhere else, perhaps on a computer, you know, what with it being NASA. He's also got the job of kind of telling the audience what's happening, even though... Unless we're stupid, we've realised that. And there's one particular line he says. He says um, to to his colleagues, he's 50 miles away from home. He's totally alone. He thinks we gave up on him. What does that do to a man psychologically? (laughs) We we don't need someone to say that to us. We're thinking it. Um, It's piss poor is what it is. But it's better than in uh, in the audio book. He's Vincent Kapoor in this movie. In the audio book, he's Venkat Kapoor and he's an Indian uh, guy. And the bloke R.C. Bray, who does the, um, who who reads out the book on the audio version, he does the accent and it's, it's really awful. It's like an Apu accent he's doing for this character. And it really made me cringe every time I, I heard them do that. So you don't have to do all the voices on an audio book, especially if you're going to do these dodgy Indian accents. Yeah. Well, there was, um, there was a bit of a, a, a bit of a furore uh, about um, Chiwetel Ejiofor's casting in that role. Cause it, like you say, in the actual book, it's a, it's an, a, a character of Asian descent and, um, and people felt that it was, it should have remained that and an Asian actor should have been given the role. Um, Andy Weir, the author, purposefully didn't describe um, people's appearances in the book, um, or and he says that the character was an Asian American, uh, and so to change it to Vincent Kapoor in the film and have him a, a, as an African American is fine with him. Uh, but they did, I think, offer it to Ifran Khan initially, the um, mm. the Asian actor from Life of Pi and. Jurassic World, and he um, he couldn't do it, uh, mm. so they went with Chiwetel Ejiofor. Mm. Uh, let's skip through some of the rest of the cast. Then uh, you mentioned Sean Bean. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Is I mean, this the wrong yeah. film? <laughs> doesn't make any. Yeah, all I wrote down. Oh, it's so funny to say that, Vicky. I just wrote down what is Sean Bean doing in this film? Yeah, <laughs> it's in it, the wrong it, film. It takes you out of it. I don't know. I guess you don't think of Sean Bean as being a brain box. Um, and you also don't think of him wearing a cardigan. I'm like, no. Sean Bean's not ready for cardigans yet, is he? No. Uh... Um, so there's, uh, there's Jeff Daniels is great, though. I like no. Jeff Daniels in it. I, I No, I think he does a really good... You can't just say no unless you've got a reason. <laughs> because it's just like central casting. I'm the boss man. I'm going to talk in very dramatic short sentences. And that's it. Like As a character, beyond being the boss of NASA, what is that man? Nothing. That probably consumes his life. Maybe he is nothing more than being the boss of NASA. That defines him. That's all you need. What is what is Wilson other than a volleyball? Nothing. Yeah, so there enough. you go. Right, okay. Um, we've also sort of uh, talked to uh, uh, Kristen Wiig. It's, I, I will grant you it's kind of strange seeing Kristen Wiig in a very straight role because um, it's one of those – 
you always think of Kristen Wiig being funny. And yeah. here she's kind of She's comic funny, relief though, isn't she? But not really. I think she's funny. She's the world's worst PR person. She's terrible at her job. <laughs> she sees that Matt Damon is actually alive and her first response is, are you shitting me? Rather than, oh, it's okay, I've got a scenario plan for this because I'm your PR media person. She's just like, no, you're kidding. <laughs> it's ridiculous. She's also there to ask uh, Vincent uh, dumb questions on behalf of the audience so he can over-explain <laughs> stuff. I'm starting to realise that maybe I I should have enjoyed this movie less than I did because because um, it's crap. I, it's not crap. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's move away from Kristen Wiig. Uh, how about we talk about uh, Matt Damon? We haven't yeah. really touched on his performance. Um, I was going to say, Alex, this is a this is a big cast. We're not going to go through everyone in the cast, are we? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> Oh, we can. I've actually got notes on all of them. Sure, sure, sure. If you if you want. Uh, so let's um, let's go. No, let's go, let's focus on Matt Damon. Um, I think he does a great job, um, especially doing uh, playing a role where Mark Watney uh, is quite cocky and quite confident. And like Vicky said, we're not really given. Um, uh, much about his family, which I think is a really interesting choice. He doesn't have a partner back on Earth, and although his parents are mentioned twice, we never see them. We never find out what they think, which is an odd call, but also a brave call because it doesn't it doesn't give us anything to sort of want him to return to Earth for, other than himself. So it's all based on what we think of him as a person, a cocky person and i like him i still think matt damon's likability shines through yeah i I liked him it's not it's it's not for me his performance that i you know didn't gel with it's just the the, who as he's written as a character but as an actor he he is he is so likable and he's fun to watch and even though he gets these silly lines about like i'm gonna science the shit out of things and all the rest of it which in the circumstances is a bit glib but whatever um he's really watchable um oh yeah i don't have a problem with his performance it's strange how he doesn't i really like him in it i kind of wish some of those video diaries had a little more emotion in and i understand that he's actually playing the character as the character is written which is someone who doesn't dwell on the negativity and stays positive by you know sciencing the shit out of every situation he comes across but Sometimes they feel like exposition dumps those moments. It's a lot of like, this is what's happened. This is what I'm going to do. And that is the premise of the movie. But it would be nice to see him um, a little more fragile in moments. Um, And I only say that because the bit where he hears Jessica Chastain's voice for the first time in ages when he's about to take off in the Mav uh, and he breaks down and like, you know, starts crying. That's a really great moment. And mm. a few more humanizing moments as opposed to super scientist, yeah. I think would have really helped us engage with him a bit more. I agree. Yeah, I mean, Matt Damon's always good. Uh, in terms of the character, I'm kind of agreeing with you. I feel like he's a bit too much of a Boy Scout and, and maybe he could do with a bit more edge. But ultimately, that's not the story they wanted to tell. Um, you know, this is a, a very optimistic um adventure film and so i mean that's i think that's a minor issue i have with it okay uh well at this stage do we have any more for any more on the machian or do you want to do bits let's do the bits okie dokie um 
Christopher, who was your... What was your best scene? Oh, I had one bit of trivia for you. Oh, hello. In a deleted scene um, when Matt Damon is swearing at them on Earth, but we don't actually see what he says. We just see their reaction to it. Uh, the deleted mm. scene, we find out what he actually called them. Do you know what he called them? His bosses. No, no but I do, I do really want to know now. Go on. He called them uh, bureaucratic felchers. and if you don't know what felching is uh, no we don't need to say that's hilarious Uh, this felching felchers and felching is one of those words that you try to get away with saying in front of uh, adults as a kid because you were rolling the dice on the fact they didn't know what it was and you go yeah felcher and see whether anyone went I beg your fucking pardon (laughs) yeah don't look up felching um, and in terms of differences between the book and the film, I think the major interesting one that might have made this a different film if they had adapted it directly was that we don't find out how Mark got stranded on Mars until 100 pages in. Um, we start off with him stuck there doing his stuff and then and then we have a flashback to that moment. And I, I don't it would have made it a different film. Uh, it might have made it a bit more engaging, but uh, I just thought it'd be interesting to point that out. And the Iron Man thing you said as well, he he suggests that in the book, but just as a joke, they don't actually do it. <laughs> so someone, I think it's quite funny. Someone read that and thought, no, actually, we can do this. Oh, wait, in the, I can't remember that bit in the book. In the book, he doesn't fly through space like Iron Man? No, no, he doesn't oh, Iron well. Man it. But she, she does rescue him, I think, in in roughly the same way, but he doesn't he doesn't do the um the sort of jet propulsion. No, she she doesn't rescue him in the book. It's um, yeah, like, the other guy. They gave it. Yeah, yeah. Beck rescues him. Though they yeah. they just changed it for um for the movie, so Jessica Chastain could do it, seeing as she was the one who stranded him there. Uh, one of those um, movies that is nominated for a handful of Oscars, including Best Picture, uh, the first um, the first time uh, since Gladiator that Ridley Scott uh, was nominated for uh, Best Picture. Uh, but it was one of those movies that won nothing, not a single thing, not even a technical Oscar. Um, no offense to technical Oscars, they are still Oscars. But no, it didn't win anything at the Oscars. It and Brooklyn were the two big losers that year, the uh, Saoirse Ronan movie. So let's do the bits. Yeah. Brooklyn's great, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, right, let's do the bits. Uh, so, best scene. Um, I really like the uh, Starman sequence where the Bowie song plays because it spins a whole bunch of plates in terms of moving the story forward. We see what's happening in America, in China, on Mars, on the spacecraft. Um, And I think the music really works well in there, and it feels like the cast is having fun, and Ridley Scott is having fun, and I was having fun watching it. Vicky, best scene? Uh, The first 10 minutes, and that's it. Um, So you're going to hate this, V, uh, but uh, my best scene is the... um, the climactic rescue at the end where Trafalgar Square is full of people <laughs> as is Times Square. Look, I'm just a real sucker for climactic action in a movie being watched by an audience within the movie and their reactions, I think, double down on the emotion of what you're being asked to feel in those scenes. So people like with their hands to their mouths and like gasping and like cheering. I'm like, oh, I'm gasping. Oh, my hands at my mouth. I'm cheering just like them. And so I get even more emotional. And I did get emotional at the climax of this movie. It's all. It's why I like sports movies. Without actually liking sport, you see that American football flying through the air 
in that final pass of the big game. And I am there going, I hate this game. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So I get it. And I like that. And that's why that's my best scene, the climax. MVW, Chris. Um, I don't think it was particularly original to do uh, a cross between Castaway and Apollo 13 in space, but I'm going to give it to Andy Weir for coming up with this. Uh, I think it's a cracking adventure story and uh, well done him. Yeah, he's got an, uh, his next second novel is something called Artemis that I um, I haven't read, uh, but in 2017, so a couple of years, a few years ago now, they said that Phil Lord and Chris Miller we're going to be turning that into a movie. It's um, apparently it's a bit like uh, The Martian, but it's set on the moon. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. So, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> when you're good at something. Yeah, if it um, broke, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, uh, what's yours, Victoria? My MVW is Mackenzie Davis, who plays Mindy, the satellite comms person that first spots that Matt Damon is alive. Uh, just because she's in the Black Mirror episode San Junipero, and it made me remember that and wish I was watching that, and that's always quite a nice feeling. Wow. Mm. So much hate for this movie. I know. Um, uh, mine is Matt Damon. Um, I think he's really good for a film in which he spends a lot of time talking down the lens at an audience, which I think can be disconcerting for an audience and... Um, kind of an odd thing to do for an actor i think he's really good at that um and so i like him right what would you change um we don't have all day victoria so <laughs> uh just put him in some actual danger at some point uh that's it chris i'd change what you said earlier in the podcast alex because you were suggesting that the life of one person wasn't worth the lives of six meaning that if i was stuck on the moon you wouldn't come back and rescue me and that has really <laughs> upset me um. Yep. See if you can get a refund on your space tourism tickets, because I am out. <laughs> um, I would, I would change. I feel like this film has a real tendency to over-explain stuff and spoon feed the audience, and I don't think you need to patronise us. We're smart, so I would cut out a lot of that. Um, you know, telling us what's happening on screen when we can bloody well see it for ourselves. Uh. I, I've, I, having listened to um, what you've said, I'm going to change my change. And my change would be that uh, next time Vicky has to watch it with me and I'll nudge <laughs> her and go, but this bit, but this bit's good. But hang on, but this bit throughout the film to make her appreciate that it's not as bad as she said it was. All right, that's The Martian. We're done on The Martian. Um, before we get to the verdict... Would you like a little quiz? I have, yes. I have a question, uh, a bit of trivia that I, I, I picked up that I will say before the quiz because it does involve a question, kind of. Um, Matt Damon... Uh, uh, are you doing a little mini quiz on no, my no, quiz week? not really. It's more trivia. It's more trivia. Um, Matt Damon has a tendency to need to be rescued in a lot of films, eight in total. And a website called BGR did some numbers on that. Um in terms of how much it cost to make movies about him getting rescued, but how much it would have cost in real life. And so Matt Damon has to get rescued in Courage Under Fire, Saving Private Ryan, Titan AE, Syriana, Green Zone, Elysium, Interstellar, and The Martian. Uh, do you know how much that cost in terms of movie budgets? 
Go on. $730 million. But the, the, the cost of actually pulling off those uh, rescue missions in real life, uh, this website to- uh, totted up. So how much do you think it would cost to do those rescue missions? Uh, $2 trillion. Alex? $2 trillion. <laughs> Nine hundred billion, just under one trillion dollars to rescue Matt Damon. Yeah, we weren't far off, really. No, no, it's amazing, and we we both picked the same number, which is weird, but uh, that's crazy. Yeah, Um, does he need to be rescued from the legend of Bagger Vance as well? Because it's so awful. It's not that bad. All right, right, here's my quiz. Uh, My quiz is this. so uh if you're listening to this episode of uh clash of the titles about isolation i want to take you on a journey a journey to a desert island you are there with chris and vicky the question is who would you rather be stuck on that desert island with chris or vicky i should say immediately this is not based on personalities this is based (laughs) on their survival skills. I'm going to ask them a series of questions based on what you should do if you find yourself stranded on a desert island. Whoever has the most answers is the one you would choose to be stuck on that island with because they would help you survive. So welcome to our desert island. That's the waves on the beach. It's a bird unnamed in a tree. Right. It's a cow. <laughs> a, cow a cow on the on the get milk. <laughs> this is my island, man. Don't find this I I decide what's on the island. There's no cows. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why is this so funny? Oh, that's right, because I've been stuck indoors for a week. Um now, uh so let me set the scene. You've washed ashore on a desert island, but you've got a gash in your elbow. Doesn't look deadly, but what should you do first, Chris and Vicky? Should you A, find water immediately, or B, treat the wound as best you can because you still need to stabilise it? Uh, B, rinse it in the sea, move on. Okay, Chris? Sorry, I'm confused. What wasn't A the water one? What wasn't A the water one rather than B? A is the water one. All oh, right, yeah, it's both. Rinse it in the sea. <laughs> you can't have both. None of them are both. You gotta pick one. All right, I pick the water one. Yeah, I'll pick the water so one. So you're as well. having, you're both having fine water immediately. Yeah. Not treat the wound as best you can. Yeah, need to tr- stabilize. It. Treat it with seawater. That's what I'm saying. All right, I go B. You have to stabilise the wound, because otherwise you'll bleed to death. Okay, do you want me to change the first one to fresh water? Find fresh water immediately, Mm. or B, treat the wound as best you can. You need to stabilise it. Is it life-threatening, the the wound? No, you you think it doesn't look deadly. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just get a bit of water then, if it's not not too serious. Okay, so Chris is going A, water. Vicky's going B, treat the wound. Vicky gets a point. It is B. You need to treat the wound before doing anything else because infection can lead to shock, which leads to a quick 
death. Yeah, but it was question two. It wasn't life threatening. It was fine. Well, look, you weren't sure. You're not a doctor. So uh, you've treated your wound. What do you do next? A, search the area for some... (laughs) (laughs) With my good arm. (laughs) Uh, Are we done now? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I think everyone listening would rather be stuck on that island with Vicky. (laughs) (laughs) Chris... Hiding behind a palm tree, panting. Why am I hiding? (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever looked a cow in the eyes while you're masturbating? It's very disconcerting. Sometimes I have to. Uh, <laughs> how long have you been in self-isolation, Chris? <laughs> it feels like longer uh, than a week. 123 uh, weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you've treated the wound. What do you do next? Scan for survivors, build a fire, or look for water? See, look for water. Water. No, it's A, scan the area for survivors. No one gets a point. Your best psychological asset is to have a partner on the island. Oh, so, so thirsty, though, mate. I'm really thirsty. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all that masturbated. Uh, question three. Stress can lead to panic and panic to death. What should you focus on mentally? Is it A, stay focused on your next important task? B, make a timeline to track your days stranded? Or C, concentrate only on positive things? A, next task. Yeah, A. You both get a point. That is correct. You need to focus on your next task because getting those sense of achievements for each little task keeps you sane. All right, you're thirsty. You vaguely remember something about a solar still. What do you need to make a solar still? A, a plastic sheet, a container and some vegetation. B, a metal tube and a bucket. C, a bucket with a clear plastic lid. Or D, a jug and a magnifying glass. Isn't it C and A? Like, you could both. you got to pick one. Chris? Uh, okay, one. A, A. I was going to pick A. But that'll be boring if I keep being the same, so I'll go A. I'm going I'm to let you pick A as well. A is the right answer. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, that's how you do it. The vegetation goes in the bucket in a hole. You put the plastic sheet over the con that distills water or something. I didn't read beyond that. Um, okay. Finally. Chris, if you get this right, then you draw with Vicky. Vicky, if you get this right, you win. You've decided to take your chances at sea. What shape? Should your raft be? Is it A, a rectangle, B, an oval, C, a circle, or D, a hexagon? What offers you the best chance of survival? I think C, a circle. Uh, what were the options again? I'll go the rectangle. The answer is... A, a rectangle. It's the easiest to manoeuvre and the most stable. We have a draw, which means Vicky and Chris are on a desert island together just waiting for you to turn up. (laughs) Making babies. (laughs) All I have with me is a lot of contraception. <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, and I think got, anyone asking got, the question. All I've got, Vic, is a copy of The Martian on DVD. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I think this uh, episode will be listened back to by scientists to see what the effects of self-isolation does <laughs> on people who also work in the broadcasting industry. <laughs> <laughs> Talking up our job. <laughs> right. Verdict time. It's this week's verdict. So your choices are Castaway, Moon, or The Martian. I'm going to start with uh, you, Victoria. What are you going with? Because we know it's not The Martian. Yeah, I'm just going to keep it short and sweet. It has to be Castaway. It's the example by which everything else like this would follow. Does that make sense? Uh, it's Yeah, it's exemplary. Um, it's quotable still 20 years later. The crash still looks amazing 20 years later. Tom Hanks is amazing. Uh, so it has to be Castaway. One for Castaway. Chris? All right, yeah, I'll drop out The Martian as well. I mean, I think it's a fun adventure story, but it kind of annoyed me this time, so um, that one's gone. Uh, I love Castaway because uh, of that sort of emotional journey it takes you on. Uh, it's sort of it's made by a fantastic director and one of the all-time great actors, and I feel like their combined talents takes a story that isn't all that commercial or appealing and makes it incredibly entertaining and bravely quite melancholy at the end and i think it's a film that really still feels like an event when you watch it um but there's a lot going on in moon as well i you know it's about isolation and greed and consciousness and free will and it 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 doesn't just ask you what it means to be human but i i feel like it really tries to answer that question um plus you get two sam rockwells for the price of one as we said before which which gives it a, a distinct advantage uh but if i've got to pick a favorite um because of the economy of storytelling and the humanity at the heart of that story and the way it makes me feel deep down in my soul, I'm going to go for Moon. Wow. One for Moon, one for Castaway. So don't pick the Martian so- or we're screwed, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the Martian. No, uh, let me explain what I'm going to go with right now. So uh, it's an interesting one. Um, I... <sighs> I will say that of the three movies, just out of interest, um, The Martian has the highest rating on Rotten Tomatoes at 91%, followed by Moon at 90%, and then Castaway's at 88%. Uh, Not that that's influencing me in any way. I'm my own man. I love Moon. I really do love Moon. And I actually walked into this episode thinking Moon is a dead cert for me. I remember loving it. Um, The Martian, yeah, I don't know. There's some things I love about it, but overall, it's it's a very nice movie, but it doesn't elicit uh, the emotional response I'd expect from a man stuck on his own on a hostile planet for me. Castaway is... Great. I enjoyed it a second time, even knowing what happened. For me, it's between Moon and Castaway, and I am going to go and declare the winner of this triple threat isolation Clash of the Titles special as the movie that made me cry my eyes out. It's Castaway. Yay. Castaway is my vote. Yeah. Yeah. Castaway. Just for Wilson, for Wilson and Wilson alone. Uh, you know, I appreciate it's Hanks, it's Zemeckis, but 
Wilson makes that movie. Watching him float away into the horizon haunts my dreams. <laughs> Don't we have a winner? This week's winner is Castaway. Congratulations, Chris. Are you are you cool with that? I mean, Moon's great, but Castaway, yeah, right? Oh, Come on, I'm we're all friends. Castaway's a great movie. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. All right then. So, uh, what are we doing on next week's show? Um, because obviously there's a chance we'll still be recording remotely, a very good chance, in fact, probably a 100% Definitely chance. Will, yeah. yeah, yeah. So tell me a, a little more uh, about whose choices uh, we are going with. It's you, Chris, isn't it? Mm. Mm. As we're in this new world order that's happening with these empty streets, it's got me thinking. It's got me thinking. And Vicky, would you like England or America? <laughs> um uh america no i want america right, fine fine, america. fine 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 i don't care it's fine why do you want america alex i don't know i just feel that if it's gonna be a better it's... film <laughs> obviously <laughs> <laughs> there might be a bit more money spent on it you know flashier visuals you know more famous people in it as well yeah they've got a great film industry out there okay vicky do you want america or england uh, no I, I want, I want, I want England now. Vicky picked America. Give me Britain. <laughs> it's right. the way the cards have fallen. Alex, you have twenty-eight days later, and Vicky, you have I am Legend. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, uh, that's good. Actually, I've seen I am Legend recently, so um, I'll take twenty-eight days later as the first rewatch for a very long time. Love that. Good. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. I'm waiting to see if it's another triple threat week, but it's just the two this week. Do you want a third one? No. No, God, no. No, 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 no. I'm busy. Got loads going on. Got loads going on. Um, all right. I, I literally do. I really do. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, so there you go. Uh, Chris, do you know where you can watch those movies? Do you have that information to hand? No, I forgot to do that, and I always do that, so I'm disappointed in myself. Uh, but they are <laughs> they are available, so there you go. <laughs> Uh, all right, cool. Well, there you go. I'm sure you can find them uh, wherever you want. Um, I'm just sorry. I'm looking now just to see if I can help. Uh, uh, I Am Legend is available to rent on Amazon at least. And um, what was the other one? 28 oh, 28 days later. 28 days later is also available to rent on Amazon Prime video. So there you go. They're both on Amazon at least, so they are gettable. Uh, so those are the movies for next week. Uh, for the moment, then, uh, thank you very much for listening. If you want to hit us up on Twitter uh, about these choices and whether Castaway should have won this, it is, as always, at ClashPod. You can use hashtag ClashComment. Until next time, uh, stay safe, and we'll be back in a week. Bye-bye. This was a Stakhanov production. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.